And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whichever the case may be on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition, a very special edition, and I, I'm not really you know, overhyping when I say that. A very special edition tonight of The Other Side of Midnight. Tonight, I'm going to try to preview in the next three hours why we are entering a civilization changing moment in history not just american history but world history i mean folks a uh, thousand years you know later than tonight we may look back on this moment this night and say okay this is when it began because right now if you go to the other side of midnight.com and you click on the banner for tonight which is about the artemis mission you can't miss the uh rather interesting-looking female astronaut there. And you click on that banner that takes you to the guest page. Well, I'm the guest tonight. I'm the only guy. Well, actually, I do have some little furry friends. They are they're literally arranging themselves to listen to the show. How interesting. Anyway, um, the countdown, as you, if you look at the first item under uh, Radio Pictures uh, on that page, has been... Uh, continuing for several hours actually since this morning but a few minutes ago the uh, launch team got the okay from the meteorologists to begin with fuel loading there's uh, mission rules with uh, all rockets that you do not want to load fuel particularly liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen uh, when there is lightning in the vicinity and the uh, criteria say that there has to be a less than 20 percent chance of lightning striking near the pad. Well, yesterday afternoon, uh, or yesterday morning, actually, if you were following the countdown with Artemis, they had five lightning strikes in the space of, uh, you know, a few seconds. And they actually had to go and do damage assessment and check the gauges and the instrumentation that measures electrical field voltages and all that. And they did not exceed any criteria, but lightning and fuel do not mix so there is thunderstorm activity uh, across florida tonight i mean we're basically in summer in florida <clears throat> i've spent many a incredibly humid summer in florida so launching a major rocket in fact the largest rocket to date it's going to be eclipsed uh, in the next few weeks but for tonight for tonight for now this is the largest rocket that humankind possesses um, since the saturn V. The good old Saturn V. Wow. Anyway, so the countdown is proceeding. They're loading liquid hydrogen and oxygen. They'll be doing that for the next several hours, around 3 a.m. Eastern, which will be about the time that our show closes. The tanking will have come to a close. And then there is a couple of critical tests that they will um, uh, be conducting, having to do with the hydrogen leak that occurred at the end of the um, what they call the wet dress rehearsal where they do everything on the terminal count up to and except uh, launch the rocket and that was aborted because they had a hydrogen fuel leak and major pipe and uh, linkage that's going to be tested tonight after tanking has reached what they call the uh, steady state replenish because these these uh, fuels really want to boil off at um, Florida temperatures 
So in order to keep the fuel load to the max for when you launch, they keep topping them off. And they're going to stop that at this point in the count, which is in about uh, three hours. And they will then do a pressure test to see if the seals and the refurbishment of that uh, pipe of liquid hydrogen, which they had a problem with several weeks ago, has in fact been successfully fixed. Uh, rocket launches are a million details. Well, tonight we're going to rise up way above 30,000 feet, and we're going to look to not only why Artemis is going, and remember, there are no people on board this thing tonight. This is an unmanned test. So they're going to be doing a few things differently, as they've been saying now for days and days, overstressing the system so that when they put people aboard, which will be like in a year, give or take, uh, maybe a year and a half, uh, and you may wonder why it's going to take that long between tonight's test and the next launch. Money, nothing more than money. You know, this is a star program compared to uh, Apollo, but the technology is so much better that they can be much more efficient, so they're able to do the minimal with the amount of money that Congress has given them. But in fact, if we had more money, the next uh, man flight, human flight around the moon, Artemis II, would take place in like maybe six months instead of a year and a half. I mean, that cadence is really, you know, for all of us dying to get the Artemis missions and people's eyeballs on what's waiting on the moon are really kind of chafing at the bit, which brings me to item number two. Because tonight what we're going to do is we're going to give you the mega background reasons from over 30,000 feet as to why this night may be looked back upon by historians as the beginning of the end. The beginning of the end of what? Well, the cover-up. Because if Artemis proceeds over the next six weeks, give or take a day or two when it's going to launch, um, everything on Earth could change. Because with the technology on board, specifically the cameras, um, it will irrevocably resolve the question, uh, is Hoagland nuts or is he for real? Because if there are no ancient artifacts on the moon, then I am certifiably nuts. But there are, as I'm going to spend the next three hours with exquisite, multi-layered, independent sets of evidence, hopefully proved to the jury out there the jury of listeners all around the world in something like 193 countries to the other side of midnight. So let us begin. Item number two. It is very fortunate, as Isaac Asimov once told me many years ago, that Earth, in fact, has a moon. In fact, he was uh, kind of wryly uh, saying one day that if we didn't have a moon, we would have to invent one. Why? Because it's an exquisite stepping stone for a fledgling civilization, you know, kind of uh, encumbered by extraordinarily primitive rocket technology, which we still are. There are better ways to go into space, and that will be part of, you know, upcoming shows. Uh, I had for a while one of them sitting in my dining room. And no, all you agents do not rush to uh, uh, here, I, you know, in the wilds of Placidus. I long ago put that in a very safe place where only I can get to it. But it, in fact, is a technology which makes rockets totally obsolete. It was invented about 10 years ago 
I have the test module to provide to appropriate laboratories for test. And the only thing we've been missing is the funding uh, to actually carry out those tests. That is a very, very broad and directed hint. Now is the time when the other side of midnight could use some funding because we are entering the end game and the, and the funds of subscriptions just, just basically keep us on the air. They're kind of like replenishing the hydrogen tank on the pad tonight. They just keep us going. They don't give us any wiggle room to do the most important expanding things that we now need to begin to do, given that this is a political campaign with extraordinary data, which if we're successful, if we're politically successful, we in fact can initiate a stunning new chapter in this whole long soap opera called Disclosure. So Isaac said it's fortunate that we have a moon. Well, because we have a moon, we can go to it with rocket technology in about three days, although Artemis will take about a week, and there's a reason why it will take them a little longer to get to the moon than Apollo did. Uh, one of those little details that uh, most people probably don't know about, and uh, I guess I'm fortunate that I do. Anyway, if we did not have a moon, Isaac said we should invent it because the stepping stone, as you can hear in all of the plans that NASA has been laying out, um, are basically calling for it to become a stepping stone for a human mission in the next uh, decades. They're now talking about the late 2030s. Good grief, give me a break. Because if what I'm going to show you tonight has any traction, we are going to be on the moon and on Mars far above and uh, sooner than this incredibly archaic conservative timeline, which again is based primarily on NASA's lack of funds. Now you might say, how can an agency with $20 billion, give or take, be strapped for cash? Well, look over at the Pentagon. They had like $600 million when I last looked. It's probably more now. Um, imagine what NASA could do with twice as much money, maybe $40 million, uh, billion, as opposed to 20 but they have to eke out an existence because most of, most of the Congress does not really think down in their heart that NASA is important. They are funding NASA primarily because, to their minds, it is a jobs program keeping people in their district you know, employed and thereby ensuring their votes when re-election time comes around. NASA is much, much more than the pedestrian jobs program that the politicians in Washington uh, view it as, and they are funding it as such. Well, if what we're going to show you tonight finds any traction in the halls of Congress, and it won't do so until NASA, in the form of this mission, confirms what I'm going to say. But if Artemis, in, indeed, in the next six weeks, with all those exquisite state-of-the-art HD cameras, looks out and sees what there is on the moon to see for anyone with eyes to recognize, then everything will change, including the funding, which means we could be sending humans to Mars not around 2040, good grief, 
but maybe as soon as 2030, which is what President Obama envisioned when he laid out this rather conservative timetable. There are some technological elements that have to be brought into line, but that's, a, that's another story. Primarily, the impediment tonight to putting humans on the planet Mars is funding. Nothing more, nothing less. It's funding. Now, item number three. This mission, this uh, test mission about to launch at 8.33 uh, tomorrow morning, that's Eastern Daylight Time, and you know I'm predicting that it will not launch for a variety of reasons, which we will not know until we approach 8.33. So let's assume for the moment that it is going to launch tomorrow morning on the 29th of August of 2022. It's named Artemis for a very good reason. As you can see in item number three, Artemis was the twin sister of Apollo. And Apollo was the god, among other things, of music in the ancient Olympian Greek pantheon. And as you know, in the mythology that we've decoded, music is a synonym for resonant frequencies, and resonant frequencies are a, a, a metonymic form of hyperdimensional physics, torsion field physics. So Apollo equated in NASA's deep, deep mythological background to the physics, which is exemplified by the literal existence of the moon orbiting the Earth, as you will see. So, because Artemis is the twin, and she is the female side of the male-female bifurcation of intelligent life on Earth, NASA, in its infinite wisdom, decided to choose Artemis as the harbinger of things to come. And thereby, this program is called Artemis, and for very interesting reasons, all the people who are watching and participating and working on it are deemed to be members of the Artemis generation. We live in the era of branding. So if you go down to item number four, um, if you look carefully at the uh, Apollo logo, remember in the upper left-hand corner is the classic Apollo logo, which we figured out years ago was really just kind of a code name for Orion. Because Apollo in the Greek is really Horus in the Egyptian, and Horus is the, is the descendant of Osiris, who is, of course, in the Greek mythologies, Orion. And you can see the close-up there of the medallion, that's Apollo looking out from the face of the moon. In NASA's view, in their mythological symbolism, the man of the moon was Apollo who, of course, was symbolic with the physics, the HD physics, which, in fact, the moon orbiting the Earth modulates, as you will see as we go through the morning. Well, I couldn't resist in item number five of putting up uh, one of those incredible views of the glorious, amazing, to still not overcome uh, Saturn V uh, on the crawler, the extraordinary... Uh, a crawler that took it from the vertical, I'm sorry, vehicle assembly building. There's a, an old joke about James Webb and uh, President Kennedy. Kennedy was doing a tour of uh, the Cape one day back in the uh, 60s before he was assassinated. And uh, they're in an open Cadillac and they're, you know, 
rolling around the launch site and the the uh, vertical assembly building and the launch control center and um, uh, Kennedy, who had this impish Irish humor as they're passing this extraordinary cubic building, which is a cube, which of course is a double tetrahedron. It's the largest building in the world, by the way, still is when it was built in 1965, it was, and it still is. Anyway, it's got these huge roll up doors and the rockets are assembled vertically inside. Ergo, Webb saying it was the vertical assembly building because you can either stack them horizontally and lift them up into place like the Russians do and like uh, Musk does with the Falcon uh, 9 rocket, or you can stack them vertically with huge cranes and fit them together and then you roll them out on their crawler to the pad, which is about three miles away, and it takes like a day because they're moving on the average of, uh, uh, you know, a mile an hour. And they they really don't, you know, they stop several times. They check the uh, gravel. It's, it's a very long, complicated process to get a huge rocket from the vertical assembly building to the pad. It certainly was back in the days of Apollo, and it still is now because they're using the same crawler. They've upgraded them. They've refurbished them. They have all kinds of new bearings and motors and diesels and cabins and air conditioning and all that. But it's basically the same crawler that I used to walk around and uh, kick the tires. <clears throat> and you don't do that because it hurts your foot. Because they aren't tires. They're huge, huge tractor treads made of steel. Anyway, so Kennedy and Webb are in this open Cadillac. Uh, Webb is guiding the president on the tour. And as they pass the cubicle, you know, vertical assembly building, uh, Webb is pointing grandly and he's describing this and that. And he says, Mr. President, and this is our vertical assembly building. And Kennedy, with that impress humor, leans over and he says, uh, Jim, how exactly do you assemble a vertical? And, of course, NASA instantly changed it to the vehicle assembly building, better known as the VAB. So presidents do have an impact. Item number six, after the second rollout a, a few days ago, as it reached the pad at dawn, this is a stunning shot, uh, shot by one of the photographers there at the Cape, of the Artemis rocket, the SLS, the Space Launch System, uh, silhouetted against the rising sun to the east of Cape Canaveral in the pre well, actually, it was post-dawn, but quite spectacular. Now, item number seven. This is, this is an in, increasing graphic I found, which kind of symbolizes what's really going on around this mission. Because among her other uh, Artemis was the Huntress. She also was the goddess in Greek mythology of the moon. Connecting, of course, by metonymy, uh, hunting and the moon. So why is it fitting that Artemis is now the name of the current mission and the current program to follow on in the footsteps of her brother, her very famous brother, because of uh, NASA and because of Kennedy and the decision to go to the moon uh, over 50 years ago? Well, because tonight, and I have a definite frog in my throat tonight, and I don't know why. Let me take a sip of water. That might help. Hang on, guys. That's why I always bring water to the control room when we do the shows. You never know when you're 
going to need it. Anyway, Artemis the Huntress is kind of an incredibly fitting symbolic uh, attachment to this new program, the Artemis uh, Moon program, because Artemis the Huntress symbolizes the fact that Artemis the program is going to literally hunt for ancient artifacts all across the moon. And that symbology, after tonight, after you've kind of all internalized the really amazing data that I'm going to be able to show you, that we've never put together in this configuration before, and so this is going to be one that you're going to want to, you know, subscribe to Club 19.5, which is the way the show is supported, hint, hint, and become a member, and you want to tell your friends and your family, because I guarantee you, of any place on the web or in broadcast journalism, the only place you're going to hear and hear it first the truth about what NASA is really finding on the moon is right here on the other side of midnight. And isn't that worth about uh, 10 bucks a, uh, a month? I mean, you, you, you fritter away money, I know I do, on all kinds of stupid things. If you want a direct pipeline to what is really going to happen as we enter this stunningly evidentiary period of the disclosure process. I mean, give me artifacts to UFOs any damn day of the week. Why? Because the occupants of UFOs can lie and probably will. The artifacts do not. They sit there waiting to be understood, to be decoded, and for us to find the libraries. Item number eight. Uh, This is a very interesting comparison. Side by side, um, the, on the right-hand side is the stunning uh, Saturn V vehicle with 7.5 million pounds of thrust at liftoff. It was 363 feet tall, which is a symbolic number. NASA back then didn't do anything without overt symbolism, and 363 feet. I forget it off the top of my head, but it had some arcane, very important symbolic reference. The Artemis Block uh, 1 vehicle to its left is 322 feet high, which is a lot smaller than the Saturn V. Now, at liftoff, um, it generates 8.8 million pounds of thrust, primarily because it's augmented by those two ungainly solid fuel boosters trapped to the sides, just like the shuttle. This is what we call an engineering kludge. I mean, the Saturn V did not need the strap-ons and was able to lift into low Earth orbit 118,000 kilograms. Now, a kilogram is 2.2 pounds, which means you kind of uh, double that and then add a margin. So the Saturn V could put maybe 230,000, 40,000 pounds into Earth orbit and send 100 tons of spacecraft, command module, lunar module, service module, to and, and from the moon, whereas the Block 1 Artemis uh, SLS vehicle can only loft about 95,000 kilograms, which is well shy of 200,000 pounds. But that will change. They're planning upgrades. There's going to be a Block 1B, the version of the uh, uh, Artemis SLS booster introduced before the next launch of Artemis 2, and that's part of the pacing item that has delayed the Artemis 2 mission because Artemis 1 can barely get to where it's supposed to go. They're really 
They put together a brilliant, uh, you know, duct tape and bailing wire to make this mission come about. But it's not the way you want to conduct any kind of operational flights with people to and from the moon. So that's an additional part of the delay of like a year and a half. And again, money, funding, an increase in NASA's budget would shrink that delay because it's basically, you know, when you pay for anything from the federal government, you're basically paying people. It's not the hardware, it's not the software, it's not the engineering, it's the people, salaries, medical, all that good stuff. And the bigger the task, the more people in teams you have to put on something, and that, of course, raises the cost. So more money, more people, less time, and quicker results. Just a hint, guys, just a hint. Now, you need to be aware that sometime uh, in the next week or two, um, the dark horse coming up fast on the inside track named uh, Elon Musk is going to be launching his starship for the first time into low Earth orbit. That has been promised in the past, past several weeks, past several days. It's now going to slip into September, but that really doesn't matter because when Starship is in the running, it will be able to easily outdo SLS. But in, in, in case you hadn't noticed, NASA has, has contracted with SpaceX, with Elon Musk, to develop the landing stage vehicle, the equivalent of the Artemis lunar module, which will uh, take astronauts uh, from the uh, uh, lunar orbit that they will establish on mission number three down to the surface of the moon and back up again and then home. So that will make the comparison of the two preceding vehicles kind of moot because uh, the uh, Starship stack stands much taller than the Saturn V and it can launch a much heavier payload directly to the moon, although there is plans for Earth orbit refueling, which is another incredible advance that NASA could have done decades ago and is just now kind of getting around to thinking about it, while that's a uh, cornerstone of Musk's plans to not only go to the moon, but send the same starship, stainless steel, sparkling 21st century spaceship to Mars at some point. Item number 10, the Denuri capstone mission combined with Artemis 1 have trajectories in space, which if you look at number 10, and remember, all these are clickable. You click on them, they become full screen. Um, I li limbed out the trajectory of each of the, these, two, these three missions. The Artemis mission, of course, on this flight is unmanned. The capstone mission, which launched a little over six weeks ago, is unmanned. And the Denuri mission, which launched about uh, two weeks ago, it is also unmanned. They all are taking what we would term in the business the slow boat to China, meaning they're not going to get to the moon in three days. The uh, capstone mission is going to take about three months. We'll get there November 13th and be inserted into lunar orbit, unmanned, 55-pound, basically a super CubeSat. You'll hear about CubeSats tonight as the uh, Artemis 1 launch takes place uh, in the next few hours, hopefully. Uh, the the uh, orange line, that's the trajectory of the Denuri, uh, South Korean 1,500-pound unmanned spacecraft, also going to the moon, uh, going into lunar orbit, carrying 
the so-called shadow cam of Michael Malin, which is a kind of a long-range preparation for the Artemis missions, which on item number three, uh, mission number three, will land at the lunar south pole because that's where the water is. You know, that's where the ice is. That's where the volatiles that will fuel not only return rockets, but also breathing oxygen for the crews, for habitats, for the development of the fledgling moon base, which will be built at the South Pole in those deeply permanently shadowed craters, as you've all heard for many years, there resides this extraordinary reservoir of permanently frozen ice at super cold temperatures. In fact, the coldest temperatures in the solar system, Pluto's surface notwithstanding, four billion miles away from the surface of the sun, it does not have the coldest temperatures in the solar system, the moon does. And with that, we reached a stopping point. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. I'm laying out tonight the background for where the Artemis missions could be the most important missions, not only to the moon, but in the beginning of a whole new phase of human history. We shall return. Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to fast episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, to The Other Side of Midnight on this Sunday night, August 28th, just hours away from the impending launch of Artemis One. Well, tonight here on The Other Side of Midnight, for the next uh, two and a half hours now, we're going to go through the background of why the Artemis One mission and the Artemis program itself 
unfolding in succeeding missions, beginning with live crew, real Mark I eyeballs looking down as they fly by the moon in about a year and a half, if the current schedule you know, uh, continues, is going to represent the stunning, shattering paradigm shift represented by human discovery and public acknowledgement. That last part is critical of what's been waiting on the moon for millennia, for uncounted generations, for literally millions and millions of years. And tonight, the unveiling of what's there, what is waiting, seems about to begin. Okay, picking up where we left off, um, we were on item number 10, which is the combined trajectories of all three missions, all unmanned, which if you go to number 11, this is the, uh, um, the Artemis uh, trajectory uh, in close-up. And if you click on it, it gets much bigger. You'll notice that it's this very long, looping journey to the moon, and then there are all kinds of interesting things that happen uh, when they go into orbit, which did not happen with Apollo. The details can be seen in item number 12. These are uh, 12 and 13 are uh, the, the, the broad scale schematic of the trajectory of launching Artemis in this, what they call uh, a retrograde, uh, distant retrograde orbit, DRO of the moon which will take it as far, well, I'll lead to that, you know. It's going to take like about a week to make one orbit, depending upon the length of the mission, depending upon how the spacecraft is, is surviving in this, you know, stress test, whether all the consumables are working, all the electronics, all the uh, incredible number of individual parts that have to function flawlessly, um, including the updated, you know, 21st century state-of-the-art computer systems that, you know, Apollo could only dream about. Do you realize that, that they flew to the moon back in Apollo with a computer system that was a thousand times less efficient than what's in your smartphone? Literally. Um, and there's multiple levels of smartphone technology in Artemis that will launch in the next few hours. So as Von Braun told me many, many decades ago when I asked him at a public news conference, how come Apollo was such an improvement over his early rocket days of launches and things blowing up and all that. And he looked at me in front of the entire world because we were all on live television and I represented then CBS. And he looked at me and he said, <clears throat> Mr. Hoagland, computers. And that still obtains. The reason we're doing what we're doing tonight and tomorrow morning with Artemis is all due to computers and the incredible Moore's Law advancement in that tech. Now there's some engineering upgrades that have really you know, kept us in the game, but the most incredible pacing item that has made literal technological miracles possible, in other words, doing all this with nowhere near the budget that NASA had for Apollo in equivalent dollars, accounting for inflation, um, well, it's because of computers and the incredible efficiency where they get incredibly better about twice as, as much every 18 months, so-called Moore's Law. Item number 13. Now, this is an enlargement of the moon portion of the diagram in number 12. You'll notice immediately that NASA is still up to their symbolic best. 
because the direct retrograde orbit of the moon that they will stay in for up to five weeks, once well, four weeks, a month, you know, counting a week to get there and a week to get back. Um, and I'll get to why it's much longer than Apollo in a minute. That retrograde lunar orbit, and retrograde simply means that the spacecraft is orbiting in this incredible loop backwards to the way the moon is moving around the uh, around the Earth in its orbit. So it's a retrograde orbit relative to the moon's motion in orbit of the home planet. Uh, notice the distance between the high point of the retrograde lunar orbit and the center of the moon. 39,000 miles. Oh, and what is 39,000 miles? Well, it's twice 19.5,000 miles. Duh. And remember, they're launching from pad 39B. That's important. 39. Uh, Okay. B, second letter of the alphabet. 2. You divide 39 by 2. Oh, my God, you get 19.5. In other words, NASA cannot go down the hall to the men's room, even now, without conducting a ritual. And that's why I think the launch is not going to take place uh, tomorrow morning, despite all their best efforts, because if they wait four days, if they launch on Thursday, uh, on the 4th, I'm sorry, on the 2nd of September, as opposed to uh, tomorrow morning, uh, their mission will shrink because of certain celestial mechanics realities from the projected 42 days for the Artemis 1 flight if they leave tomorrow morning to, <clears throat> wait for it, 39 days, twice 19.5. So I'm kind of hanging my hat on the fact that they're consistent, if nothing else. And I guarantee you, because of, uh, of uh, superstition uh, at some incredible deep level in the agency, if they can do anything that will reinforce what they're doing with the magic numbers, the um, hyperdimensional Masonic numbers, which have dogged the uh, NASA space program from the beginning. They will not launch tomorrow morning. They will find some reasonable excuse. The hydrogen leak, uh, lightning too close to the pad, somebody hiccup, somebody threw up their lunch, something, anything, and they'll recycle the count to the second, which will give them a 39-day window of opportunity orbiting the moon. Now, why is any of this important? Because if you look at number 14 and look at that trajectory, by my calculation, given that they're basically launching in the same plane as Apollo, meaning they're in the equator of the moon, this is not going to be a polar orbit, uh, Artemis 3 will be, but this will be literally in the same plane around the moon, only a much more exotic orbit than Apollo. Um, their closest point when they get there in about a week, um, will be 60 miles, which was the closest point of Apollo's orbits, the command module and the lunar module descent to the surface. Uh, The difference is that um, they're swinging by in about a week at that distance, but then they fire the engine, the service propulsion engine built by the Europeans in this uh, collaboration of nations and nation states between NASA and ESA, the European Space Agency. ESA built the service module. Uh, the U.S. contractors built the command module. They put them together. They've, they've had the service module ready for like two years, and it is going to function really, really wonderfully, I think, because the Europeans, remember German engineering, 
and Germany is the primary uh, driving focus in terms of their space program of the entire ESA program. Don't tell the French that, okay? Anyway, so they will launch in this very elaborate trajectory, which will take almost a week to get to the moon as opposed to three days. Why a week? Well, it's the kind of taking the slow boat to China. You don't have to race to the moon to get there. You can take a very long, leisurely trajectory. And why would you do that? Because you're trading basically time for fuel. If you, F equals MA, if you accelerate your vehicle, which weighs a lot, to a higher speed, it takes a lot of fuel. If you're really penny-pinching and miserly and just want to burp out as little fuel as possible, you can basically set up a trajectory where you coast from Earth to Moon, from Earth orbit to Moon, and it takes months in a long, looping trajectory. That's what those trajectories are in item number 10. That's why they look so weird. The, the unmanned uh, capstone and Denuri missions literally go out a million miles uh, away from Earth before they loop back and then go into orbit around the moon. And it takes them three months to do that because they're saving precious fuel. Well, Artemis doesn't have all that time, but it has so many more consumables and capabilities than the service module of Apollo that they can afford to kind of loaf along, save fuel, uh, take a week to get to the moon and the lunar orbit powering past phase as opposed to uh, taking three days shortly because the, uh, the Apollo astronauts had to get there and get back because of the limitations of consumables on board, fuel, oxygen, water, that kind of thing. Artemis is, is basically fat on all these consumables. That's why they can envision a six-week mission in space testing the spacecraft systems when actually all the future operational flights for Artemis are planned to be about 21 days. So they're looking at a two-to-one margin, and they will find out all the little creeks and crevices and crannies and cracks in their plan and the engineering. In other words, this is really, really, really what we used to call a shakedown cruise. And it's going to shake out all kinds of little niggly problems, which will obviously be fixed in the year and a half between the launch tomorrow morning, I don't think, and the year and a half for Artemis II. Why do I have slide number 15 up there? Because 15 and 14 are intimately connected. When Apollo in its three days, and the days are not really that important because it's the being in the plane of the moon's equator, which is critical, given that the moon is almost straight up and down relative to its orbit, it's only tilted uh, to the Earth's orbit by five degrees, and it's perpendicular to its own orbit um, in terms of its rotational axis, It means that during Apollo, there was a time when the astronauts, as they're rounding the curve to go behind the moon and fire their big SPS engine to slow down enough so they could go into orbit around the moon to be captured by the moon's gravity into this uh, circular orbit, uh, they went through the moon's shadow, which is what that diagram number 15 is showing you that even if you can't see them out behind the Earth and the moon and every other object in the solar system, because of the sun and the center of the camp, um, each of these planets have shadows, long cone-shaped regions where if you enter them, it gets very dark. It also gets very, very cold. So 
uh, en route to the moon, I have been looking for any demarcation of what Artemis will do when it enters the shadow of the moon prior to firing the engine to put into this very long elliptical uh, 39,000-mile orbit of the moon, twice 19.5, of course. And I can't find anything. The only reference I found is a reference that because of solar panel bonding, remember, this spacecraft, the Artemis spacecraft, unlike Apollo, actually extends solar panels like the Russians uh, once they get into space and those replenish the batteries. That's, by the way, the major reason why they don't really care much about time and the limit on uh, staying in space, orbiting the moon is uh, not limited by power, by electrical energy, which they store in batteries on board. It's limited by consumables that are not recycled like oxygen, water, etc. Oh, and the food. Yeah, don't, don't forget the food. Artemis, the, uh, the, the next mission will actually have a galley and it will have a uh, uh, restroom and a gym. I mean, can you imagine this little cone-shaped spacecraft, which is like 16 feet across at the base? Uh, volume goes up as the cube of the diameter. So there's a lot more volume in the Artemis command module than there was in the uh, uh, very cramped uh, Apollo command module. But in zero gravity, the astronauts made it look roomy. Remember those tumbling videos, which were really film that's now been transferred to YouTube videos? Anyway, as the spacecraft goes to the moon, um, Celestial Mechanics says to me that it has to, at some point, go through the moon's shadow. And um, uh, what I was really wondering about is why there was no real written discussion of this in any of the literature. And then I found one reference that they can only stay in the shadow either of the Earth or the moon uh, if the trajectory enters those two cone-shaped regions for about 90 minutes. After 90 minutes, bad things happen, and so they don't want to stay in the shadow um, over 90 minutes. So if you read number 16, this is the reference that I found, uh, which is in uh, uh, Artemis One Trajectory Decision and Optimization Document, NASA JSC, that stands for Johnson Space Center, AAAS uh, number 20-849, that's the reference, you can Google, The Orion spacecraft is limited to eclipse durations of no longer than 90 minutes. This restriction was originally put in place due to the susceptibility of the solar cells to debond out from Orion's solar arrays when in the extremely cold environment of an eclipse. This restriction is currently in place also due to power and battery capacity concerns. The eclipse constraint on its own reduces mission availability, that's when you can launch, to a minimum of about 18% of what otherwise would be available for launching any old day or week or time of uh, of day. To attempt resolving these issues and bringing these missions back into the fold, a mitigation algorithm was developed to reshape the trajectory along the flight path. They don't say that, but I'm adding that. And bring violating eclipses under the duration threshold. So why is that important? Because as you're going to see later in the evening, eclipses are the crucial, amazing, so elegantly simple key to blowing the doors off the centuries-long cover-up 
that we are not alone and what's really hiding on the moon. It all comes down, as you're going to see, to the question of does Artemis in those six weeks going to and from the moon and the month-long stent in lunar orbit in this incredibly uh, elongated 39,000-mile uh, ellipse um, that takes them a week to go around once, will they ever enter and exit, even for under 90 minutes, the shadow of the moon, which will give them stunning eclipses? And given that they're planning to transmit all kinds of live video, they got all kinds of P. Uh, I.O. events, public information office events scheduled for live this, live that, you know, benchmarks, milestones, you know, furthest distance from the Earth, uh, uh, when they go into lunar orbit, when they do the powered flyby, all kinds of things. What they have not mentioned in any of these hours-long press conferences that I've, you know, been watching with avid interest, obviously, and I thank you for all you people out there who've been sending me updates and links and saying, like Don, you know, you got to watch C-SPAN. There's another Artemis briefing. It's all been very useful, very good. But nowhere in all of these has anybody said or have the press asked the question, are you going to be transmitting live color television video during an Artemis eclipse by the moon? And I think there's a reason, as you're going to see, why they've been avoiding this subject. Oh, this is a terrible pun. Like the plague like COVID-19, which brings us to number 18. This is the geometry that produces this extraordinary celestial wonder here on Earth, a solar eclipse of the sun. Very simple geometry. Click on it. It gets bigger. You can see that because of the distance of the sun from the Earth and the distance of the moon from the Earth and the relative differential in their sizes, we get about twice a year when the moon's orbit crosses what's called the nodes, which is where the orbit is in line with the Earth-Sun distance, you get an eclipse. You get the moon moving across the Earth geometric-wise in such a way that the shadow, the cone-shaped darkness behind it, drapes itself across the Earth, and those people living in that shadow, which races along at like a 1,000 miles an hour because of a combination of the moon's orbit and of the Earth's rotation, um, those people are incredibly fortunate to see a total eclipse of the sun. If you've never seen one, in 2024, there's a stunning eclipse that goes literally from Mexico all the way up through Maine. And um, Robin and I were able to witness the one in 2017. It was the last major uh, expedition that she was able to carry out with me at the top of... Uh, the Sandia Peaks, where we measured, again, with the Anchotron, the extraordinary hyperdimensional physics that goes crazy during an eclipse. But that's another show. Anyway, item number 19, this shows you geometrically why um, you only get eclipses when the moon is lined up with the sun, which only occurs roughly twice a year um, in, the, in the spring and fall when the uh, nodes, which is what the uh, points where the orbit of the moon crosses the orbit of the Earth as kind of a tilted hula hoop. Um, you can get the geometry for the moon to move between the Earth and the sun, giving you a total eclipse. In any one location, it has been said, and I think the numbers are there to prove it, that um, you will experience an eclipse in any one spot once every 350 years. That rule of thumb 
if you uh, wait till the end of the show, you'll see why, is going to be violated in 2024 because the eclipse track of the total eclipse of 2024 crosses almost at a right angle uh, just to the east of the, of the Midwest, uh, kind of around, uh, I think, Kentucky, Tennessee. And so inhabitants there are fortunate that they will have experienced two eclipses well within their lifetime, one in 2017, a total solar eclipse, and then the one that's upcoming next year in 2024, and they don't even have to move off their porch. It literally will come to them, obviously illustrating that statistics are only as good as the number of examples you have to, uh, to process. Item number 20. Given the stunning visual um, extravaganza of a total solar eclipse, uh, we've got all kinds of sketches going back, you know, decades, hundreds of years, uh, even thousands of years, if you count the, uh, the Anasazi, who did a pictogram over in Chaco Canyon of what was obviously a total eclipse of the sun seen from Chaco Canyon in, I think, 1054 AD, if I remember my numbers from my visits uh, for NASA to Chaco correctly. Um, but in a more recent history, on June 16, 1806, a Spanish astronomer named Fer- Ferrer um, sketched what he saw in the way of a total eclipse of the sun. Notice his drawing has radial projection rays going out. It's got a diffused nimbus around it, the corona. I mean, it's, you can kind of identify some of the features that we know of modern eclipses. There's also a feature right around the moon that we'll talk to uh, uh, in a while. And then in 1851, remember that was in 1806, a few decades later, 1851, uh, Johann Friedrich Burkowski, uh, a Russian uh, in Russia, uh, on a daguerreotype, which was a very primitive early form of photography, whose complexity is well beyond describing tonight. Anyway, just look it up. Um, He was able to capture the um, astonishing uh, visual kind of analog of an eclipse during the eclipse of July 28th of 1851. And there it is. And you can click on it and make it bigger. And again, you'll see that there's this kind of peculiar feature kind of hugging the limb, which if we had been much, 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 much brighter as a species, we would have realized what it really was, you know, decades earlier. And God knows where we would be technologically tonight. Hell, we might even have starships going to and from Alpha Centauri. Oh, well, history did not move in that direction. Item number 22. Um, This is a compendium of seven individual eclipse uh, images, photographs, through a process called the wet plate process. Uh, In other words, still very complicated chemistry for photography. Nothing like uh, film used to be, for those of you in the audience who remember what film was, you know, celluloid, you know, little rolls you put in a camera. Um, Some professional photographers will remember, uh, you know, glass plates um, those are developed in a bath, just like the, uh, the uh, plastic-based uh, film emulsions. But this was a much earlier archaic process called uh, uh, the wet plate process. And what the astronomer did who took this picture is he took seven separate telescopes, put cameras at each one, and he had to take seven long exposure, you know, like maybe a minute 
photographs. And then in the dark room, he mechanically superimposed the seven, you know, the number seven tetrahedral images into one final print. And that's what you see there in number 22. And again, this is beginning to show some of the delicate tracery streamers that uh, uh, modern uh, CD photography can do literally with a point and click. Technology really has moved on. Item number 23. This is why we get eclipses. And uh, it's really been an astronomical puzzle hundreds of years, if not even longer, for those folks thousands of years ago that uh, kind of wondered about these things. Why is the moon optically the same size, give or take a few percentage points, as the sun? The sun is 400 times farther away, but the sun is also 400 times bigger. So that diagram shows this incredible cosmic coincidence, which astronomers have been touting for decades, if not centuries, and nobody has a clue uh, why it looks the way it does. And tonight, you're going to be one of the first audiences to find out why we, in fact, do get eclipses of the sun by the moon and it allows us to see stunning details unavailable on any other planet in this solar system, even those that have 60 or 80 moons. None is like the moon around the Earth, and that is for a specific reason, which we will walk through later in the morning. Item number 24. Um, during the eclipse, during the uh, totality, just before totality begins, uh, observers have noted for, you know, hundreds of years that you get a phenomenon on the ground. And if you put down a white sheet, it's much easier to see. You get a phenomenon called shadow bands. And we will return to shadow bands shortly, but we're literally at the top of the hour. We don't want to miss our breaks this morning. You're on the other side of midnight, and we're going into a detailed backgrounder as to why the Artemis mission is going to kickstart human civilization in a way that never has been possible before. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. 
listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. everyone on this Sunday night here on the land of in the land on the land in the land of enchantment you're on the other side of midnight I'm the uh, soul guy here tonight your purveyor of the reasons why Artemis could be the breakthrough as the Hopi have said we have been waiting for so back to the task at hand uh, I was on number 25 which is an enhanced version of item number 24, because these were photographers that took these pictures, same photographer, I think in Alabama, during the 2017 total eclipse that stretched across the country. And as you can see, even an ordinary point-and-shoot CD digital camera or a smartphone uh, takes a stunning picture. But when you, when you enhance it a bit, look at those shadow bands. They have been a mystery for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And you're not going to be able to do it during the show. But if you really want to see an astonishing example from an eclipse in 2019, um, you go to item number 26. There's a very long video, uh, several minutes long, showing that shadow bands uh, begin much earlier than mainstream astronomers thought and persist much later after a totality is over than they thought because they, of course, did not have the sensitivity of modern HD cameras to record this astonishing phenomenon, which in fact is an incredible, right in your face, blatant indicator for all of humanity of what is really waiting for Artemis and all those other missions on the moon. Provided, and this of course is the forever caveat, provided NASA in their infinite wisdom chooses to show us to tell us, to admit, absolutely astonishing. Um, if you go to number 27, this is probably one of my favorite uh, expressions from my good friend who is no longer with us, um, Arthur C. Clarke. Arthur C. Clarke had something which he called uh, Clarke's Third Law. And in uh, desperation, um, some years ago, I began coining my own you know, Hoagland's laws, because when you're kind of running with the in crowd of high powered people like Isaac Asimov, who had God knows how many uh, um, laws or Arthur or even Heinlein, you know, in order to keep up, you got to come up with something. So my first law is all science is approximate. Arthur's third law 
is any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And what did he mean by magic? He meant that which humans, with their limited understanding and limited science and limited time on this planet, have not yet figured out. It would be like taking uh, uh, the Artemis spacecraft back to the Middle Ages and plunking it down in some city square. Yeah, they might get the hatch off and they look inside and they would not have a clue as to what they were seeing because everything they would be seeing, up to and including the LED light panels, would function in ways that their science, their best you know, magicians, could not figure out if they had a million years. And of course, back in those days, they had maybe on a good day, 40 years before they died because of disease and limitations of medical science and all that. So efficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And that, of course, in this model that you're going to hear tonight in great detail, is what I think NASA confronted when it went to the moon 50 years ago, actually 53 when we first landed, uh, a few months more if we count the uh, unmanned Apollo 8 and the manned Apollo 10, which was a stunning orbital mission, a kind of a uh, precursor, a, a, a tryout of uh, Apollo 11. Um, they encountered such a stunning, mind-boggling, absolutely world-shattering, human civilization destroying in their minds, think of Brookings, that they literally freaked out and they've kept it all secret at all costs for over 50 years. Or as um, uh, this rather elegant uh, video clip is going to tell us, um, you can literally see what NASA was confronted with uh, many uh, decades ago by listening to uh, Dr. Morbius from Forbidden Planet, because I think he sums it up in this uh, very interesting passage from this incredibly seminal film. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a whole expose, probably three nights uh, or three hours on a, on a night running, just like I've done with Artemis and, and Webb. Because the story of Forbidden Planet in the 1950s, in 1956, begun a couple years before, and all the incredible hyperdimensional torsion field, ancient Martian civilization coding, which a conglomeration of studios in Hollywood, who never really wanted to collaborate on anything, and for this film, a bunch of them all got together because this was the ultimate message film in the 50s when we were thinking that the universe was our oyster and we were this fledgling civilization rising up, as Arthur used to say, from the great primeval sea, reaching out into space, etc., etc. Well, Forbidden Planet showed those who knew, the in-crowd, in the idiom of communication. Remember Gene Roddenberry's famous, famous words, Dick, if this is real, it'll be on television. Well, that's not a newfound kind of insight. For most of human history, for people to get, even the hoi polloi, the inner in crowd, the inner sanctum, the, the elites, the folks that run the planet, run the world, for them to believe that something this unbelievable is real, they've got to see it on television, 
in the major mainstream newspapers or on film, on the silver screen. So this is what Dr. Morbius said about the crew of the Bellerathon discovering, uh, pursuant to his being there uh, 20 years before, what happened to the super civilization that was the iconic foundation of the foundation of Forbidden Planet. Listen to what Walter Pidgeon says and what NASA is thinking as they watch this film. In times long past, this planet was the home of a mighty and noble race of beings which called themselves the Krell. Ethically, as well as technologically, they were a million years ahead of humankind. For in unlocking the mysteries of nature, they had conquered even their baser selves. And when in the course of eons they had abolished sickness and insanity and crime and all injustice, they turned, still with high benevolence, outward toward space. Long before the dawn of man's history, they had walked our Earth and brought back many biological specimens. I see. That explains the tiger and the deer. The heights they had reached. But then, seemingly on the threshold of some supreme accomplishment, which was to have crowned their entire history, this all but divine race perished in a single night. In the 2,000 centuries since that unexplained catastrophe, even their cloud-piercing towers of, of glass and porcelain and adamantine steel have crumbled back into the soil of Altair IV, and nothing, absolutely nothing, remains above ground. What were they like? No record of their physical nature has survived, except perhaps in the form of this uh, characteristic arch. I suggest you consider it in comparison to one of our functionally designed human doorways. That recording was made by Krell musicians a half a million years ago. And thereby hangs a tale, because you may have noticed, as all these incredibly interesting uh, uh, portrayals of mythical history uh, seem to resonate, that there are key numbers, 200,000 years, half a million years. Well, gosh, boys and girls, those are the same numbers that when we figured out the celestial mechanics and the alignments at Sidonia was the last time the godlike Sidonians, whoever they were, whatever they were capable of building, which was miles high and miles wide structure containing tens of cubic miles and millions of inhabitants, those famed arcologies I found back in the 1980s and others now have found studying all over the planet, people like Bob Harrison and Keith Laney and uh, Neville Thompson, who we talked to last night. All these independent investigators have found that the, the Martians, the equivalent of the Krell, half a million years ago left us this staggering legacy. And why do I keep saying the Martians were the Krell? Because, of course, Altair IV was really Mars. If you look at the film, if you look literally at the mission patches of the crew of the Bellerathon, the uh, human uh, interstellar spacecraft, the starship that took... Um, uh, these uh, astronauts of the 23rd century from Earth to Altair, the star system Altair, 
um, you find that the number codings in the film at all different points point to the fact that the Krell was a stand-in, a metaphorical stand-in for the vanished Martians, and Altair IV was the stand-in for Mars. And the proof is in the little mission patches on the crew of the Bellerathon, because if you zoom in, which I've done, and you save and then enhance that spherical image on the shoulder of every one of the officers uh, aboard this starship in uh, Forbidden Planet, what they use, what the Hollywood producers use to signify this uh, primitive kind of federation of planets, which is what uh, people said, and even Roddenberry admitted that he kind of patterned Star Trek after what he saw in Forbidden Planet. That image is none other than the classic photograph, color photograph taken by uh, uh, Erwin Slifer at the South uh, African Observatory in 1954, a color image of the planet Mars. So there's all kinds of clues loaded through the film that what we're looking at is a metaphor for what happened in this solar system, some incredible, awful catastrophe that in a night created such a cataclysm, droid the Martians, quote, the Krell, whoever refashioned our entire solar system. And there are now only pale remnants still existent on other worlds around us, including Mars and most appropriate for our discussion this evening, because of Artemis, the moon. Which takes us to item number 29. Now, I've been at this a very long time. I've been at this decades. I've been, you know, turning over rocks and talking to people who used to be part of the in-crowd, people who used to work for NASA. But, uh, and I told this whole story a couple times before, so I won't go into it tonight because it, it really is much too long and complicated and we have too much to get to. But through an extraordinary set of circumstances, a, a roll of film fell into my hands briefly, very briefly before the deep state literally took it back. And I still haven't figured out whether they did it to be good guys or bad guys because they may have saved me because it was a non-class. It was, it had not been declassified. It was against the law to possess this film. And if I had it, I might suffer the same fate as Donald Trump is going to suffer because of what happened at Mar-a-Lago and all those boxes of top secret documents. Anyway, by some grace of whatever, I had this film briefly, I was able to make copies of some frames, and then it was whisked away, literally by an agent of the deep state, never to be returned. And I'm thinking, given what this person said at one point about classification, that they may have kept me from physically holding it, so I'm not doing the show tonight from a nice uh, padded cell in Leavenworth. Anyway. The film had to do with a secret project, a top secret, compartmentalized special access program from 1960, actually began back in 58, uh, called Project Corona. And as we work through the morning, you're going to see how incredibly ironic that name, that title is, Project Corona. Now, I was going to provide, as kind of background, a story in the uh, New York Times showing that there is a, a, a cover story out there as to how this incredible top secret first American spy satellite program designed to 
find out during the end years of the Eisenhower administration and the beginning of the Kennedy administration just how many nuclear weapons and rockets poised on their pads did the Soviets have, because we really didn't know. The overflights by the U-2s were very spotty, and ultimately, in a uh, uh, couple years after they began, uh, Francis Gary Powers, uh, toward the end of the Eisenhower administration, was shot down by the, by the Soviets, and Khrushchev canceled a summit meeting. And so we were really looking at this kind of Russian uh, egg, where you have a, a layer within a layer within a layer. And so the powers that be, the deep state, if you want to use that term, the CIA, together with the U.S. Air Force, you know, began development of a project called Project Corona, a code name, which had a public code name. I mean, this is one of the only projects I know in, in U.S. government history which had two code names, one that was top, top secret, that's Corona, and one that was kind of public, which was a cover because they couldn't keep the launches secret. You know, when you launch a rocket, uh, everybody in the neighborhood knows, and it turns out that Vandenberg Air Force Base is only a couple of miles from the Union Pacific Railway, and trains go up and down that railway just like they go through the downtown portions of Flagstaff, Arizona, like every few minutes. So they had to time when they got into the operational phase the launches of Project Corona when the trains weren't passing because then the conductors or the engineers or passengers would look out the window and see this rocket going up uh, and say, I wonder what's, that, what's happening over there. So they created a two-tier top-secret special access program. The real name, which was Project Corona, and we'll get into the ultimate irony of that as we move through the morning, and then a cover public fake name. And the fake name was Discoverer, the Discoverer Satellite Program. Well, in fact, the two programs on the surface look to be totally different, but in fact, their goals I now have found from this incredible uh, set of circumstances that allowed this film from Project Corona, this top secret, priceless film shot in Turn to Earth and then ultimately decades later wound, winding up briefly in my possession so I could make copies before it was whisked away, never to return. Um, the overlap of those two programs, the top secret Corona and the public cover Discover, turn out to be one and the same. Because what I discovered as part of this leak, and you'll see as we move through these next few slides, this was not an accident. Someone wanted me to have this evidence and they may have done it in a way that I wound up in jail fortunately somebody swooped in and made that impossible so I'm not going to be sharing a cell with Donald Trump okay item number 30 uh, this project project corona the first technical capability to overfly the Soviet Union and take pictures from orbit uh, and not have your plane shot down was a top-secret compartmentalized program of the Eisenhower administration and of course President John Kennedy when he came into office in 1960 knew nothing of this and was absolutely amazed by what was going on and what he was now in charge of and at this point what you want to do is you want to look under Kennedy's portrait and you'll see where it says fast links to items you want to click on Richard page two because we had so many images tonight Keith had to load them on three pages so we don't you know, keep downloads 
to a horribly uh, restrictive, uh, lengthy process for those folks that have almost no bandwidth. So that should take you to the top of page uh, number two, item 31. This is a kind of a pricey summary of how Project Corona um, started out because Eisenhower had proposed to Khrushchev that we basically exchange airplane flights. They fly over the United States. They map all our missile bases. We fly over the Soviet Union. We map all their missile bases with using aircraft and aerial reconnaissance, and Khrushchev was having none of it. So uh, Eisenhower's backup was the creation of the first clandestine spy satellite reconnaissance program, codenamed Corona, which ultimately wound up incredibly outdoing the U-2 flights, you know, like I think they photographed something like a million and a half square miles in the first successful mission compared to just a couple of hundred thousand that took four years for the U-2s to successfully uh, return in terms of film brought back to Langley and other CIA and Air Force centers. Which brings us to number 32. This is the actual Corona spacecraft. It was a very unique program. It uh, put, it lofted a, uh, very high-tech camera built by Fairchild and iTech, which are incredible imaging technology companies located. Well, iTech was located outside Boston, and Fairchild is in Germantown, Maryland. Uh, Werner von Braun worked for uh, Fairchild after he left NASA, and his uh, aide and aide-de-camp, uh, Carol Rosen, uh, uh, worked for him there. And that was, well, that's a long story, which we don't need to get into tonight. I got a million of them. Anyway, item number 33. The retrieval of the data was unique because on August 18, 1960, after something like a dozen tries and fails, rockets blowing up, spacecraft going awry, reentry capsules not reentering, et cetera, et cetera, on August 18, uh, 1960, which is what, 70 two years, yeah, is it 72 years ago? Something like that. Um, within a few days, uh, they had their first successful return. And then a few days after that, they had their first successful uh, film returned. And that film showed stunning details on the surface of the Soviet Union. If you look at 34, this is a geometry. Uh, the Discoverer slash Corona secret spacecraft were put into polar orbits. That's why they chose Vandenberg as a launch site because you can launch either directly north or directly south from Vandenberg and you only fly over the ocean, which is the only point on the West Coast I think you can easily do that, which is why Vandenberg ultimately turned into a uh, uh, launch site on the West Coast. And the train was there before, so they couldn't get rid of the train, so they had to time their launches to when the trains were not passing. Anyway, item number 35 and 36 um, are actual photographs from those first Corona film uh, capsules return. Because what they would do, in terms of 33, is they would literally eject the film capsule. They would take the film with a very large uh, camera with a long focal length. The lens was about seven inches across, which was pretty big for a camera lens in those days. Had a several foot long uh, focal length, giving you a big, big plate scale. They then would have maybe a mile of film in the capsule and it would run through the cameras and the photos would be taken of all kinds of targets. And then they would reorient the spacecraft, eject the capsule, the capsule would fall through the atmosphere, re-entering just like Artemis is gonna do 
in like six weeks, and then it would be snagged in midair by a cargo aircraft uh, with a hook hanging out the back. You can see that little uh, schematic there in the bottom uh, of the frame. And they were initially unsuccessful. They got better and better, but they really, I mean, it was a clued system because they did not want the capsule to fall on land where anybody could find it because obviously they found it and they saw it was filmed. They might develop it and then they might see what we were up to. And uh, in those days, there was no electronic way of sending data from orbit down to Earth that was reliable. And so they literally returned for the entire lifetime of the Corona project, stretching from 1960 to 1972, they returned film capsules. And of course, in those days, even now, film has the highest um, information density of any imaging medium, uh, high-def CCD arrays notwithstanding. So if you look at 35, 36, and 37, you'll see examples of this early corona photography. The top is a, uh, a Soviet airfield. We were concerned about bombers and about rockets, ballistic missiles. Number two is a very elaborate uh, layout produced by the CIA for their briefings of the president of a Soviet solid rocket factory. And item number seven is kind of cute. On the left, you can see the Pentagon. And on the right, you see the Washington Monument looking straight down, which of course has intimate connections to Egypt that uh, uh, one of our colleagues has been uh, going through at great length on the show in several months past. And it stands 555 feet tall. And as you can see, the details of downtown Washington are clearly visible even in these early primitive versions of ultimately which would be much, much, much better photography. Number 38 is intriguing because it's obvious that because of the capabilities, uh, they had some downtime. You know, what do you do with a satellite when the spacecraft is not over a target where you uh, can look and see what the Soviets are doing in terms of the Cold War? Well, if you're flying over the Great Pyramids, you look down and take a picture of those. That's what's in 38, which means they were looking in Project Corona at ancient archaeology for the first time from orbit. And that may have been one of the reasons they did what we now know they did later. Now, during this lengthy program, the spacecraft under Project Corona changed and the code names of these new spacecraft changed. And so along about uh, the late 60s, 66, 67, we get a new spacecraft called Gambit. And I think a Gambit has to do with its ultimate kind of repurposed dual mission. Prove that because there's no much of a paper trail on a lot of this stuff, but that's a schematic of the, basically what these spacecraft became is spy versions, top secret versions of the Hubble Space Telescope, except instead of looking up, they looked down. Now, when they were planning, and this is where the link, uh, which you're gonna see shortly uh, for the uh, Corona mission, and specifically the Gambit spacecraft technology comes really into its own. So I'll wait for a moment to tell you about that then. And we're coming down to the bottom of the hour. So 40 is a close-up of the uh, Gambit satellite itself, showing the reflecting telescope that was packaged inside uh, with folded optics and looked out the side and took very incredibly detailed um, uh, imagery. Number 41 is the actual documentation from Space Review of the Gambit 
uh, satellite iteration under the Corona program. And in there, you will find a stunning uh, other data point because they were making much bigger telescopes that they were going to plan to use in photographing the missile silos and other high-value targets in the Soviet Union. And guess how wide the telescope mirror was for that improved satellite? You guessed it, 19.5 inches. These guys can't turn around without a ritual. And on that note, the bottom of the hour. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, the incredible saga of what's waiting for Artemis upon the moon continues when we return. Side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on the other side of midnight on this uh, Sunday evening, grading the next half hour into Monday morning in the land of enchantment. You're on the other side of midnight, and tonight we're laying out what the astonishing Krell-like potentials are behind the Artemis Return Humans to the Moon program after 50 years, half a century. I mean, everybody has been saying... Why didn't we go back earlier? I mean, if we really did it, and of course all these incredible, insane, insipid, and really ridiculous uh, conspiracy ideas, oh, it was all done on a soundstage. No, I know categorically, unequivocally, based on the photographic evidence, that we did go to the moon, and we did return stunning data, and it all was suppressed because, according to Brookings, if we'd known then what we're going to know beginning tonight, the world 
people, civilization. This is Brookings now. A whole bunch of very high-powered and highly paid eggheads told NASA, told the president, told the upper echelons of the entire U.S. government, we will destroy civilization if you guys make public too soon what's out there and what we now know is real. And on Apollo, it's obvious that NASA was confronted with an impossible problem. Tell the truth, which is in its charter. That's why I talked about the federal, you know, mandates and, you know, jail terms and all that for NASA people who are consistently lying and covering up images and, you know, overlaying fake data and all that. Well, they ultimately have an out. They ultimately can say under the deep state aegis of preserving civilization itself as gauged by the best minds on planet Earth when Eisenhower and NASA turned to them in 1959. It was not time. Remember that old Gallo commercial I quote again and again? Make no wine before it's time. Well, according to my calculations and projections and looking around the landscape at what's going on tonight, 2,000 miles away at Cape Canaveral, even as we're on the air, time. And it all begins. And what is waiting out there for the human race is going to totally transform not only everything we think we know, but all our capabilities for maintaining livable, habitable planet under our feet, planet Earth, which if you looked at the temperatures lately and all the forest fires and the drying up rivers and all that, we are in deep, deep doo-doo, as George Bush used to say. The answer is the technology available waiting in the libraries, among other places, on the moon. A technology which doesn't have to be developed if we find the right libraries and laboratories like the Krell, we literally can bring it home if we haven't done so already on Apollo 17. Remember Data's head? Remember, actually looks more like C-3PO. What if that was an intelligent AI robot? I had a friend of mine said to me yesterday that he actually had found the rest of the body. I think it was, I think it was Neville who said that he'd found the rest of the body buried under the regolith in the bottom of Shorty Crater. Be that as it may, the most important part of Data's head, or C-3PO, which could have been retrieved and brought home by the crew of Apollo 17, is that it could have been an AI, a robot, a walking clone of an incredibly advanced civilization where every individual robotic member knows digitally everything that every other robotic member of that civilization knew. In which case, we've had 50 years, literally 50 years coming up this December for NASA or the CIA or MIT or Caltech or any of the most elevated think tanks on the planet to figure out how to talk to it and see its videos and read It's history, which, of course, is our hidden history, the hidden history of the human race just waiting on the moon. Now, why is all this background in corona 
incredibly relevant. Well, that's item number 42, because somewhere in the program, and I think it was early on, um, some bright genius decided, well, if we've got this damn good camera taking film and sending it down to Earth, and of course in those days having real film to develop on the ground and look through with microscopes and loops and magnify and make blow-ups and all that. Remember, that's how the whole um, uh, missile crisis in Cuba started, the aerial overflights up to and including Project Corona of the island of Cuba and the discovery that Khrushchev had placed a whole bunch of tactical nuclear-capable missiles just 90 miles from our shores. So, And I, I can make the case that without Corona, I probably would not be talking to you tonight because you'd probably all be dead. A nuclear war, a global engulfing thermonuclear war was probably um, averted because of the capability of the United States to know absolutely what the Soviets were doing militarily and in a few short years the Soviets developing the same capability so that both sides knew cards the other had and they knew that World War III would be suicide for everyone. And so we didn't have a war. We came close. Oh, my God, did we come close. You know, the night that the Muse system detected a whole bunch of bogeys uh, coming uh, uh, over the pole. And uh, the, the guys in at Colorado Springs thought, this is it. This is, this is Armageddon. This is how the world ends. And they were smart enough to do checking. And they realized at the last minute, almost the last second, before the missiles were going to fly. Because in those days, unless you flew them, they could be destroyed on the ground. So as soon as you detected the other side launching, you launched all of yours. You know, it was called MAD, Mutual Assured Destruction. Well, they found out at the last second, almost, that the radar returns that the Bemuse system designed to ping off the reentry vehicles of incoming Soviet nuclear warheads actually was picking up radar reflections from the moon. And thereby hangs a tale, which we'll get to probably in the next uh, half hour, 45 minutes. Anyway, back to number 42. So somewhere along the line, someone said, now I'm I'm, I'm giving the very benign um, explanation for this. They said, oh, we got this great camera system. We get this very high resolution film back. Why don't we turn it around and from Earth orbit photograph the moon? I mean, it's a vacuum. So you get the best damn seeing. I mean, Earthbound telescopes at this point were all limited by scintillation, atmospheric perturbations, thermal convection currents. That's, you know, in photographs, you know, would take, even for dim objects, would take hours. For bright objects, it would take seconds. And in several seconds, the atmosphere moves so unpredictably that uh, images are hopelessly blurred. I mean, the first images of Mars taken with a 200-inch telescope are lousy. Not because the 200-inch telescope is lousy. I mean, really not. If you listened to my web presentation a few weeks ago, you know it's not. But the atmosphere is in between. So even the best technology is powerless against the atmosphere, at least back then. So what was the answer? Somebody obviously said, because I know I got the film, why don't we turn the Corona spacecraft up? So instead of looking down and looking at Soviet missile sites, why don't we take a look at the moon? Now, why did they do that? Was it just curiosity? Was it the same kind of philosophical bent that said, oh, well, we're not doing anything, and we're not over the Soviet Union, and we can't photograph anything else, we get, you know, all this film. Why don't we shoot the pyramids? Was that how it happened? 
I don't think so. And the reason is the name. I do not think it is an accident, regardless of what William Broad, writing the New York Times, claims that it was some CIA guy sitting in his office one day staring at his Smith Corona typewriter who figured, oh, Smith Corona, Corona. Oh, that'd be a great code name for this top secret spy satellite program. Yeah, right. Whereas, as you're going to see in the next hour and a half, what's waiting on the moon, and in particular, what astonishing things are waiting to be revealed during total solar eclipses of the moon, by the moon, of the sun, revealing the sun's corona is the keys to everything. And in the Occam's razor uh, example, you know, simplest theory is usually the one that's correct. My bet is there was a plan in the CIA to photograph the moon from the beginning, from the creation of the Corona satellite spy program. Now, why would that be? Well, if the intelligence agencies are kind of like the last repositories on Earth, and I'm talking about all of them, the Mossad, uh, the KGB, our guys, the Chinese, the French, the Brits, the Spanish, the Brazil, everybody, you know, worthy of, of, of the name has an intelligence program and spies. Everybody. Everybody. It's only a matter of money. If you got money, you can afford spies. If you don't, you know, it's like the mouse that roared. You have to depend on other people's spies. Anyway, I believe it was their intent from the beginning to look at the moon from space, from the vacuum of space, because they had good evidence, textual evidence from ancient libraries, ancient texts, that there was something important to be seen on the moon, directly relevant to the heritage and even origins of the human race. Now, I can't prove any of that yet until we find the libraries, or until another president boldly declassifies um, What's in those damn boxes? I really wonder what's in those boxes that were for a year and a half Mar-a-Lago. Don't you wonder? Don't you wonder why when we presented, when this team, the Enterprise Imaging Team, which includes Ron Gerbron, presented a stunning video showing exactly what President Donald J. Trump could make public a la the secret you know, Kennedy files, and thereby assure his immortality in history, and maybe even a third term or a fourth term like FDR. I mean, there would have been such a claim. He would have been such a hero. He wouldn't have had to try to steal the election. He would have been voted in overwhelmingly, and Congress, probably controlled by the Democrats, would have uh, changed the law, uh, made some you know, caveat or cutout, as they say, to allow him a third term or a fourth term or whatever. He could have had... The keys to the ultimate kingdom. All he had to do was call up his hand-picked guy heading NASA, uh, Jim Bridenstein, and say, get down here with the photographs from the moon, from Apollo, whatever you got of the damn structures. I want to see them because it's going to depend on what I do next, what's on those images. And he never apparently did that. Why not? It would have been the easy, high road to immortality why did he did he choose an alternate path we may find out and I have a feeling that the answer is not going to be what anybody 
anticipates anybody. That includes both sides of the uh, Trump conversation. Moving on, number 48. Um, this is one of the first images that I was able to, to, to uh, copy from the priceless roll of film that fell into my hands briefly, leaked to me at a major conference in Arizona, um, which, by the way, was conducted by Stephen Greer. Stephen had invited me down to give a presentation on stage, and, of course, I did it. And afterwards, a guy comes up to me, and he says, Mr. Hoagland, I got something to, to say to you. So we went off into a corner, very crowded conference, people milling around, you know, conversation, all that. Nobody could overhear us. And he said, I'm from Houston, Texas, and I've got original film from Project Corona that you're going to want to see. There's images on it of the moon. And so... Uh, I made arrangements to have it picked up. Now, if you'll notice number 44, if you turn your head sideways on 43, you can see some writing. Uh, This was a special film. I've actually been able over the years to track down just how damn special it is and why we're seeing what we're seeing. It all has to do with the kind of film. It's all about the film. Anyway, someone, because this was a negative film, meaning that the original images were taken um, as, as negatives, and then you would develop as, as prints, positive prints in a dark room. Um, someone, before the prints were made, literally wrote on the negative a bunch of stuff, including, you can see there in number 44, my name. What is my name doing, written on the negative of a top secret Project Corona roll of film and this was like in 2003 I think when all this happened when Robin and I and Morella went to Arizona to speak at uh, Stephen Greer's conference I mean talk about a leak this was the leak of all time because it turned well it turns out we'll get to the film in a second but it turns out that obviously based on the fact that my damn name is on it someone specifically wanted me at that time to have this and as I said at the top of the show if I still had the film, which I don't, swear to God, and FBI agents, if you come to the door, you won't find a damn thing. It long since left my little hands. It got returned probably to the National Archive. Um, but my name is on that film and on the digital copies that I was able to make. And there is, in fact, uh, now that everything's been declassified uh, in this realm, um, there have been subsequent declassifications of the Gambit program, the Hexagon program, the Samos program. So I, I, I think we're good to go. I do not want to wind up sharing a cell with Donald Trump. Please, please, do not throw me in the briar patch. Yeah, right. Gosh, I wonder what I could find out. Anyway, I finally tracked down after years what kind of film was loaded into these cameras. And it turns out that the specific special order film, which we know, because if you look at to the right of number 43, you see those three little circles, actually four, those are analog dial readouts. And the one that looks like a little square, that literally has written on it the type of film carried by the Corona satellite. So it was a simple matter of looking up SO226 film in the Kodak catalog, because it was all Kodak film, 
Remember I said one night I was kind of shocked way back when to find the Soviet Union was buying Kodak film and putting it in their spacecraft, looping around the moon to take their pictures. Everybody went to what my friend Charlie Wyckoff said was the uh, uh, great father in the yellow box, Kodak, Eastman Kodak. So SO226, there are specifications. Look at number 45. The specifications are it's a infrared negative film, meaning you take the picture and then you have to turn it into a positive by developing it as prints, or you make another um, positive print by sandwiching the two together and running them through an optical printer. And so you get a transparency. You make slides that way so you can project uh, the small format onto a big screen. Anyway, the sensitivity of this film, it turns out, was exactly what someone in the CIA and the Air Force, because they both work together on this, in this incredibly compartmentalized special access program. They both work together to send a film stock up that probably had to be specially created for the mission by Kodak. That's where the SO comes from. Kodak would make up special orders for very small research groups, academia, the Defense Department, the, the spy guys, you know, the CIA, the, uh, all, those, all those deep state folks. So, and I know this because of Charlie Wyckoff, who worked with Kodak to develop extraordinary films for many, many years, and I got to kind of peek over his shoulder. By the way, his name will come up at the end of, of tonight, so you're going to kind of be surprised how Charlie Wyckoff makes a return to the other side of midnight. Anyway, just click on that. That is a set of spectral curves showing the sensitivity of Kodak Special Order 226IR UV film. The operative word is UV, ultraviolet. If you make that graph bigger, just click on it, you can see that not only does this film have a sensitivity in the infrared, extending to about 900 angstroms. Remember, I got the angstrom metal by the guy whose uh, uh, grandfather created the angstrom metal. Um, but in the short wavelengths, down in the ultraviolet, all the way down to like 250 angstroms, it maintains a remarkable, much higher sensitivity. In other words, it can see in the ultraviolet, the extreme ultraviolet well beyond where normal films cut off. Why do they cut off? Because the Earth's atmosphere very effectively blocks ultraviolet light. Otherwise, on an average day, you go outside and in two minutes, you'd be burned to a crisp by the ultraviolet. I kid you not, this kind of ultraviolet is very, very damaging to biology and human organisms and two suntans. So, but if you're in space and you're looking across 250,000, actually 238,000 empty miles of vacuum at the moon, and you're looking for something that will scatter effectively sunlight in the far ultraviolet, and you equip your cameras in the Corona spacecraft with quartz lenses, not ordinary glass, they gotta be quartz, because quartz of all optically transparent materials that you can make into a lens, quartz transmits ultraviolet light perfectly. It's not, it's not opaque like glass is. That's why you really don't get much sunburn inside a car unless you put your arm out the window because the glass in the windshield and the side panels is basically cutting out the far ultraviolet uh, even more so than the atmosphere is doing. So basically none of that reaches the ground. They loaded this mission, this Corona satellite, and it may have been one more, well, more than one mission, 
you know, the, the paper trail gets very murky because there are things that I see no reference in the public corona literature to anything having to do with the corona project literally turning the spacecraft upside down and shooting the moon. Nothing. Nobody's even suspected. So me getting this leak with my name on it, I mean, that's kind of a big, Biden, are you listening? Big effing deal. It's a big deal. Somebody wanted us to have this film and what it means, what's on it. So item number 46. This is a comparison side by side of the Gibbous Moon uh, taken from the film reel that I got briefly uh, hold of and was able to make copies of uh, compared to a another commercial satellite imaging system, the Akono satellite, which is for Earth Industrial Commercial Reconnaissance. And I put them side by side to show that if you have an ordinary camera looking down at the Earth, um, as the Iconos spacecraft was designed to do, and those guys decided one night on a lark, oh, let's turn it around and look at the moon, take pictures. Pretty good resolution. The moon in the Iconos image looks pretty much like the moon that you can see through a telescope because it didn't have special lenses, no quartz lenses, and no special CCDs, electronic imaging detectors capable of seeing in the far ultraviolet. Unlike the Project Corona film and essential quartz lenses, if what I'm proposing actually came to pass. Because if you look at the comparison between the left image, which is Corona, and the right image, which is Iconos, there's a difference. There's all kinds of veiling, hazing crud between us and the surface of the moon. The familiar features, some of them are there, some of them are not. They're all kind of faded out, like you're looking through some kind of obscuration, some kind of haze, some kind of layering covering the entire moon. And you don't see that in the photo on the right taken from a similar environment, meaning in Earth orbit looking across 238,000 miles at the moon. Now, does the moon have an atmosphere? Did Project Corona create a technology to look at the moon's atmosphere? No, no, a thousand times no, emphatically no. What you're looking at in item number 46 is nothing else but the CIA's first hard copy returned from Earth orbit evidence you can look at and blow up in a lab, evidence of a stunning structure covering the moon, fabled ancient lunar dome that I have been talking about for year after year after year. It could have been as early as 1961 when John Kennedy becomes president of the United States that he was handed, among other things, evidence, physical evidence from the CIA of a successful Project Corona mission subsequent to the August missions uh, that were the first successful one in August of 1960, showing him unequivocal evidence. If you're a physicist or a photographer or an astronomer, know anything about what you're looking at, there's no way you can look at that and say that's anything but an artificial, vast, lunar-spanning architecture, i.e. something built at the level of the Krell which, of course, introduces us to item number 47. Because, you look at number 48, remember, this is a scene 
in 47. This picture is part of a frame taken from Arthur's infamously, incredibly brilliant, way ahead of his time movie, 2001, A Space Odyssey, together with Stanley Kubrick, who did the actual film, and Arthur did the script, and then he did the novel based on the script that he and, and Kubrick, you know, uh, batted back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. That film is an exemplification of Clark's third law. Up to and including a scene, just a brief scene, where instead of aliens, you see floating, glowing spaceships in a specific geometric form hovering above the alien planet horizon that Bowman is zipped to through the uh, uh, interspatial rift or stargate or whatever that he entered when he was orbiting Jupiter. Isn't it interesting, that's what the overlay is at the bottom, that each of the ancient asteroids that NASA has visited, when you actually reconstruct them before they were eroded, they look identical geometrically to the floating uh, octahedral spacecraft orbiting in 2001. How did Arthur know and when so? And we're coming up to the uh, top of the hour. We're at the witching hour here in the Land of Enchantment, midnight. So I'm going to hold number 49 for when we come back at the top of the hour because the secret of what is waiting on the moon is right there in that first corona image of the moon shot from Earth orbit sometime early in the program and in my reason projection presented to John Kennedy, President of the United States. And I'm going to tell you what I think happened after Kennedy saw what he and the Soviet Union really were confronting when we return. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. Don't touch that dial, because if you do, you'll miss everything. You wouldn't want to do that. We'll return. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment to your endeavors. Eight cents an episode, two and a half cents per hour of content. 
theothersideofmidnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, to The Other Side of Midnight for this now Monday morning in the land of enchantment. Sunday night, Monday morning. Well, 2,000 miles away. Um, They're about an hour away from the tanking, loading of hydrogen and liquid oxygen into the tanks, the huge tanks of the SLS rocket system. SLS stands for Space Launch System. Basically, hardware all put together from the shuttle program so that NASA could save money. Yeah, right. I mean, that was the idea. Didn't work out. It's really a technology, an incredible technological advance like 3D printing and stir welding and all these stunning engineering advances that are bringing the cost down of the SLS rocket. And literally, the SLS, one of them, the, the rocket launching Artemis, you know, this morning, are presuming the count is on track. I, I'm on the air. I can't check it. If anybody can kind of email maybe Keith and then he can put it in the window so that I can see if the countdown is still proceeding. Uh, in a few hours, the NASA coverage begins about 6 o'clock a.m. Eastern time on NASA TV, if you're fortunate. If you've got the web, there's uh, obviously uh, NASA television on, on the web, uh, YouTube, etc. So you'll be able to watch this in real time all of that is going on on the other side of the continent while I am laying out, now grounded in stunning official evidence from nothing other than the Central Intelligence Agency of the government of the United States, that the government, that NASA, that the CIA, that all those in the in crowd in the super top secret special access programs have known that we are not alone and there's stunning things to be found on the moon. And they sent, obviously, as per my model, uh, Project Apollo, Kennedy initiated Apollo to go to the moon and basically get the goods. And then at some point after he realized, was shown these astonishing corona images of what's really on the moon. I'm going to get into the details momentarily. Remember, this is grounded in the most important intelligence organization on the planet. They, from this data, which came briefly into my um, uh, hands, can't believe it even now, with my name on it. Somebody wanted me to know the CIA has known from the beginning, meaning right after World War II, that there's stuff waiting on the moon and that I'm a kind of a latecomer. Well, who cares? I'm glad somebody knew about it because now it's time for everybody to know and using their own data, their own evidence, tonight we're unveiling what is waiting for Artemis when it returns humans, Americans, to the moon a year and a half. Or maybe sooner. We'll find out. Anyway, why did Kennedy decide suddenly after Apollo had been announced and based again in my iteration of this data that he saw the images and realized, like, like you know, the Bellerophon and the Krell, he had to go and find out what the hell there was. And at that time, he wanted to do it ahead of the Russians. You know, we're in this huge, competitive, global, thermonuclear race. 
Did we want to give it to them? No. Something then, something else happened. And in September of 1963, just months before he was cruelly murdered in Dealey Plaza, which I think absolutely was over this, he did an about face, stood there at the United Nations and proposed that Khrushchev and the whole Soviet Union go to the moon in Apollo together. Together. In other words, he, and eventually Khrushchev, Khrushchev came around according to his son, initially thought Kennedy was kind of, you know, crazy and whatever, and then he kind of came around and realized he was serious, and that was because of how the Bay of Pigs went down. He developed an immense personal respect for the steel inside President John Fitzgerald Kennedy, and then Khrushchev realized in the baptism of fire that almost was that Kennedy was not this rich playboy from, uh, you know, uh, Hyannis, where they met in, in, in August of 1961, a disastrous summit, disastrous. Khrushchev revised his opinion. World leaders can change their minds. And because of the way Kennedy acted during the Bay of Pigs, he realized that Kennedy was deadly serious. And so 10 days before Kennedy was murdered, according to Khrushchev's son, who became a professor, a tenured professor at Brown University, and has said this on the record on PBS and many other venues. His father, Premier Nikita Khrushchev, agreed with Kennedy to go to the moon together and to make public together what was waiting there. Oh, that the world would be so different if that had all gone down. I mean, imagine a world where Instead of Putin invading Ukraine and us supplying missiles to Ukraine and, you know, hovering on the knife edge of Putin's insanity and starting World War III by threatening every third day a you know, nuclear holocaust, imagine if we together as brothers and sisters on a whole planet together with the Chinese confronted what's really out there, the incredible vast unknowns, a heritage of which we should be so grateful to be finding out about even in this ancient ancient long delayed time does it all begin tonight with the launch of artemis one i mean technically this morning since we're now here in the land of enchantment so let's get back to it because i've got boy have i got data to show you remaining beginning with item number 49 this is now um a close-up uh from the Corona Gibbous Moon film, the far ultraviolet sensitive film with all this fuzzy hazing stuff over well-known features that can't be clouds or rain or any of that crap. It's something physical and it's literally covering the entire moon, focused in on that little dark elliptical crater in the northern hemisphere uh, of the moon called Plato. And I've got three different versions. I've got a wide angle version, which shows you really have to zap up the contrast to see the crater at all. And then you see all this geometric structure arrayed over it. And the middle image is a close-up enlargement. Look at all that detail that is literally covering the crater. And then, of course, the natural view enlarged that you're seeing uh, in that uh, little enlargement at the top, that's shown at the bottom to what, you're, what you would see if you did nothing, if you did no enhancements to this film. What, what's, what are we seeing? What are we looking at? Well, obviously, we're looking down 
through the multi-layered, frosted, incredibly pitted, meteor bashed and bombarded and shattered remnants of this super moon-wide, moon-encompassing, lunar, ancient, incredible, high super-civilization dome. There's no other explanation. And if you look at item number 50, here's a comparison. The corona imagery of Plato on the left, the earthbound telescopic imagery from Mount Lick um, on the right, there's no comparison. It's obvious with nothing in between but vacuum, with the right lenses, and most important of all, the special order 226 Kodak film, the CIA, from 1961 or 62 forward, has had incontrovertible proof of ancient structures on the moon on a scale that makes even the Krell pale by comparison. Because nowhere in Forbidden Planet does anybody mention even Morbius. Oh, yeah, and they kind of domed in the whole planet when they had time. And somebody, a long, long time ago, did that to the solar system. And, of course, now a lot of the other things that I and the Enterprise Mission team have found all across the solar system over the decades kind of falls into place. We're dealing with an ancient civilization at the level of the gods as ancient civilizations like the Greeks defined them with Artemis, the goddess specifically of the moon. Now, item number 51, this is a uh, geometric reconstruction showing what we're seeing because with any optically significant layer, when you look straight down through it, you're looking through much less of it than when you look uh, horizontally, tangentially. So this shows why if you look carefully around the edges of the corona moon, you'll see a bright ring, a bright ring. Gosh, does that sound familiar? I, I, well, well, we'll get to that. That's the dome seen edgewise, which even though it's been bashed and battered and smashed, and the reason that it's only showing up in far ultraviolet is because of something called Rayleigh scattering. Remember, I've said for a long, long time, uh, and the reason the astronauts survived by landing through it uh, and didn't crash into something and, you know, die, is because the actual consistency of the surviving fragments are literally on the order of cigarette smoke, even smaller. And they can only really be seen if you use optical technology and film sensitivity, or in current days, you know, CCD detectors, that can see this very, very, very short wavelength, which scatters effectively by the tiny particles of glass still making up the dome, kind of like an incredibly fine spider web of material hanging in a vacuum where there are no earthquakes or no hurricanes, no nothing, and they just hang there waiting for something to occur, like a meteor strike. And then some of them will fall to the ground, shake it off like a snowstorm, like an incredible glittering glass snowstorm briefly as they fall from the ceiling of the dome onto the surface. Why do you think when Apollo brought back the samples and again, we have so many converging lines of evidence. When they brought back samples of the lunar soil, the so-called lunar regolith, why do you think more than half of it by weight is made of glass? It's glass. And of course, there's all kinds of you know, mainstream theories. Oh, they're 
created by silicates and meat. No, give me a break. No, these are shattered fragments, little tiny, tiny crystals of the glass making out the domes overhead. And when meteors strike, big ones and small ones, and a constant abrasion of micrometeorites, they basically hit the dome first, protecting the surface from impacts for a very long time. In fact, one of my theories, one of my models is that at some time after the super krill-like civilization that basically rearranged the whole solar system and left this nursery for us to grow up in, sometime later, another civilization created the domes to preserve the ancient history of the original reformation and the bringing of the moon into Earth orbit about 565 million years ago on a Thursday. I'm lying about the Thursday. But yeah, we can date it actually precisely to when the moon was added to the Earth. How do we do that? Well, that's another long show. I'll just give you one word. You can all Google it. It's called the Cambrian Revolution. C-A-M-B-R-I-A-N. Look up the Cambrian Revolution. The answer to the continuing mystery down through hundreds of years of science to the Cambrian Revolution is contained in what you're seeing in the CIA Project Corona far ultraviolet images of the ancient, ancient glass dome someone put around the moon. I think primarily to protect what was waiting underneath, which someday we were supposed to have access to and a lot of stuff, I'm cleaning that up, happened in between million years. Okay, corona satellites could live in orbit for like a month, two months. Some of the projected satellites had lifetimes of like a year uh, and they had multiple film capsules. So they'd fill one up and they'd shoot it down to earth and then they'd take more pictures. They'd fill up another capsule. They'd shoot that. So they could actually hang out in earth orbit and shoot very high resolution film down to earth again and again and again in the more complicated gambit and hexagon versions, which are listed above in my items. So item number 52 is a quarter moon taken obviously either earlier or later than the gibbous moon that was uh, visible in, in the first image I put up. And then when you do an enhancement, which I did in 53, you can kind of begin to penetrate some of the haze and you see that there are features, well-known features lying underneath but they're really, really, really hard to see because this haze on the ultraviolet film, it really messes up the view. I mean, there's nothing you can do to see through it. And I bet they tried all kinds of things because if you see it, um, you're not going to see through it uh, simultaneously. And if you go to longer wavelengths, you don't see like there's anything at all. It looks like the moon is covered by nothing, which, of course, is what a lot of my critics say. Oh, Hoagland, you're making all this stuff up because we're looking at LRO and we're looking at other NASA missions and the Japanese and the Chinese, and we don't see anything that looks like a dome. How come they don't see it? Because, guys, they've got the wrong lenses and the wrong detectors, and they probably know it's there, but their limited mission is to never let anybody else know what they know. So that brings us to 54. Remember in the summer, the late summer in October, actually fall, of, 9th, of 2009, there was this NASA project launched from uh, Vandenberg um, that um, 
nine, I'm sorry, it wasn't launched from Vandenberg. It was launched from the Cape. It was built in California uh, at the Ames Research Center, which is south of Vandenberg there, uh, south of San Francisco. It was managed by Ames as opposed to JPL. Its name was La Crosse, which stood for lunar... Uh, anyway, it was supposed to look for water on the moon at the South Pole. I can't remember all these acronyms, but the acronym was L Cross. So maybe a double meaning there. Who knows? Anyway, it it took uh, like a month or more to get to the moon by the slow boat route because they didn't have a lot of money. Uh, it was a kind of a marginal mission, so they had to scrimp on the rocket, which is a major part of any mission cost. They put their money into the spacecraft because it actually was going to do two things. It was going to be launched by a, a Centaur upper stage. It would be heading toward the moon on a slow boat, very long trajectory that would save fuel. And it would take about a month to get there. And when it was approaching the moon, it would separate. And the, the spacecraft, which you see in the artwork, would be about three or four miles uh, behind the upper stage, the Centaur stage, when the upper stage crashed at 5,000 miles an hour into the moon. Bang. Any impacts create heat. Heat create explosions. Explosions create debris and vapor and detritus, and that's what the follow-on spacecraft were designed to do, was to photograph and to spectrally analyze the cloud of debris and dust and junk thrown up by this artificial cratering of dropping a 10-ton um, empty Centaur rocket on the moon at 5,000 miles an hour. Not bad. Kind of like a ballistic impact. Anyway, so it all worked as advertised, except nobody on Earth saw a thing. I mean, there was all kinds of hype. And remember how even the president, even President Obama, had a star party with a whole bunch of NASA tents and uh, exhibitors and Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts and kids and uh, teachers and educators, all having parties for several nights before on the White House lawn in preparation for looking up with a bunch of telescopes. And I've got a really great picture of Obama and Michelle looking through a reflecting telescope at the moon, waiting for the impact. Well, nothing from Earth was seen. Fortunately, the follow-on spacecraft, which was called shepherding spacecraft, and thereby hangs another mythological tale because one of Osiris's slash Orion's sacred names in the Egyptian uh, uh, Book of the Dead is Osiris the Shepherd. This, by the way, is why Kennedy did not want Alan Shepard, the first human to go into space and then come back to ever go to the moon uh, while he was alive because he didn't want to lose him in, a, in an explosion. So Alan Shepard became a living icon, an astronaut who was basically tethered to Earth because his name happened to be Shepard and happened to be connected to the founding meme and deep, deep symbiology of NASA itself, which is Osiris, Project Apollo, Orion, and the connection with the moon. Doesn't this get interesting the deeper you go? And it's almost bottomless. So now we go to item number 55. Uh, this is a composite. On the left is a uh, uh, Project uh, Corona image from the Gambit spacecraft. Notice that bright line along the limb. This has now been cleaned up a bit. We're seeing, we're not only seeing a little bit through the dome layers, but you can see if you really blow this up, you can see that there's actually geometric structure in this dome. There are panels. It looks like a construction. It looks artificial as hell. 
and I didn't have time. I had to eliminate something. So you can go and look at this in uh, you know, on the website when we blow up uh, some of these pictures and show more detail. The reason I'm putting this up is because in the far ultraviolet, the ring of tangential illuminated dome clearly stands out. That's the image on the left in the Project Corona CIA picture. The image on the right is from the Lacrosse mission, which had, among other things, an infrared CCD camera, which can take specifically tailored images only in the infrared. And in this case, it was an IR image that was in the thermal infrared. So they basically were using the imagery to tell the temperature of the surface of the moon. And it's color-coded. The highest temperatures are there in the red. The coldest are in the blue in the upper left corner. And in between, there's a gradient from yellow to green to kind of blue-green and then to blue. That's the temperature falling as you go from high noon, which is right there on the, on, under the red, on the, on the right, on that curve in the lower right-hand corner of the image. And in the upper left, it's night on the moon, and the temperatures at night fall to about 250 below zero Fahrenheit. So you've got a whole gradient as measured by the camera, very good camera on the approaching uh, shepherding satellite of the Lacrosse mission. But then there's an anomaly. So look down to 56. Look at the anomaly. There's this incredible bright yellowish band hugging the horizon of the moon. And I've blown up a portion of this image. It goes all the way around the moon. On the real image, you see the whole moon. And again, I had to eliminate something, so I didn't put that redundancy up there. But there's this yellow layering above the moon. Now, what the hell could that be? Well, think about it. If you have an ancient lunar dome covering the entire moon, made of multiple layers and decks of glass, uh, basically 15 million square miles of artificial architecture in multiple layers going tens of miles above the lunar surface, and then you batter it by micrometeoroids for several million or maybe several hundred million years, what do you get? You get a dome full of holes. You get basically just tiny, tiny, tiny shards Again, of the consistency, if my modeling is accurate, of cigarette smoke. But they're real physical particles hanging in some kind of much tougher dark grid. Otherwise, they wouldn't be hanging above the moon. So these are physical matter in three-dimensional space being warmed by sunlight. And what does it do? It warms up, but because it's so incredibly moth-eaten and so full of holes, and the amount of material, the little tiny specks of remaining glass compared to the um, uh, spaces in between of vacuum are so rare that you wind up with a glass, ancient, fractured, shattered dome, a vestige, a pale ghost of its former self that is going to warm up in the sunlight, but it's not going to get as warm as the surface, which is tens of miles below. So it's going to be at an intermediate temperature. Uh, which is basically determined by the size of the particles, the density between them, the number of clear spaces. In other words, all that optical depth calculations that computers can now do with a push of a button, meaning that that yellow band is in fact physically real and is in fact what you can see in the thermal infrared 
of the remains of the ancient, incredibly krell-like dome completely surrounding the moon. I mean, when I saw this, I had posited before that there would be maybe domes over craters, kind of much smaller. This was my first clue. Remember, I didn't have in hand yet the corona data. That only came much, much later. My first clue was in this infrared imagery from from, uh, Lacrosse that, in fact, the dome covered the entire ancient moon, which for most people is like, come on, Hogan, yeah, you're, you're, you're just, you know, you're, you're putting us on. No, I could not believe it myself. Could not believe it myself. Now, what did NASA do? How did they respond to this rather remarkable information? Well, that is now present in image number 57 and 58 and 59 and 60 and 61. So let's go, go through these quickly before we reach the bottom of the hour. 57 is a simultaneous uh, visual image taken by another camera on the lacrosse shepherding spacecraft. It looks kind of, you know, normal black and white. Why would they put black and white cameras on, on this high-tech spacecraft? Turns out they didn't. What they did is they completely withdrew all the color saturation because they did not want us to ever know. And I only found out by accident by overdoing the saturation one day and bingo, stunning colors popped out. Now, Number two, what you need to know is this is not the near side of the moon. This is a shot from Lacrosse as it looped around of the far side of the moon. Item number 58, here is a comparison. Uh, the CIA image, corona image on the left, the Lacrosse image on the right, taken at the same angle. Now, why are the angles important? Because the way the dome shows up depends crucially on the scattering angle of the incident incoming sunlight. And again, the geometry of looking at the dome. If you look tangentially, edge on, you'll see it much clearer than if you're looking straight down for just simple geometry. Going straight down, you're looking through the thinnest amount of it. Looking edge on, it's like looking through the Earth's atmosphere at a gorgeous sunset. You see gorgeous sunsets because the sun rays have to pass through thousands of miles of atmosphere before they get to your eyes and they interact with all the crud, the dust particles, the clouds, the water vapor, whatever, in between, and it creates a stunning color. When you look at the sun overhead, it's just, you know, too bright to look at, and it's just a little yellow, yellowish disk, um, because there's not much atmosphere looking straight down for the light rays to come through. Same with any optically transparent medium. So now you look at number 59. I've just upped the color just a little bit, and... I realized this afternoon, and I have another image that I did not put up because there was no time, but it turns out the reason that NASA sucked all the color out of the visual camera when they made these images public back in 2009 is because if they had made them available in color, then the general public and the press and other scientists and all the people that kind of think outside the box, they took one look at that and say, oh my God, the far side of the moon is glittering in spectral colors, because remember, glass or any other optically refractive medium, it in fact is transparent to different wavelengths at different rates. You get what's called differential refraction, which gives you rainbows, which gives you spectral dispersion, which leads us to item number 60 when we return. You're on the other side of midnight. 
My name is Richard C. Hoagland. Don't touch that dial. Midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone. My the evening has gone by pretty quickly. One half hour to go. Will I make it? Will I get through all the slides? Actually, I think we're, we're in pretty good shape. When I told Keith I was going to have 60-plus slides, he said, What? And then he calmed down. And we made it semi-semi-painless. And I really want to thank him for doing a yeoman effort to get all these up, get them in the proper sequence, get those beautiful, large, green numbers we're going to keep the green numbering forevermore. Uh, that's his invention. Anyway, back to uh, the task at hand. You want to uh, uh, look at number 60. This is now the same shot in, as 59, except what I've done is I've simply exceeded the, the brightness. I brightened the hell out of it, you know, using curves and all that. And lo and behold, not only around the curve of the moon, but extending far above the moon, you have this astonishing array of brilliant colored, multicolored dots. Think of how big these things have to be to be on the scale. The moon is 2,160 miles in diameter from the top of the, of the uh, quarter moon to the bottom, over 2,000 miles. This stuff is sticking up tens of miles, maybe 50. How could anything do that? <laughs> 
well, maybe nothing human, maybe nothing terrestrial, nothing the human race knows. And if you look at 61, look at the details. And this is not noise. This is not crud. This is not just, you know, I'm over enhancing the film or whatever, because the dots have geometry. The upper layers stick up. The lower layers are in concentric layerings, basically hugging the surface of the moon miles and miles, tens of miles below, just like the detailed images of the, of the dome that I have now seen over decades that I've been looking at this stuff, basically from Apollo. I mean, it's just stunning that, in fact, we have on the moon visual evidence from NASA and the CIA that they've been holding and suppressing and restraining and not, not letting any of us know what's really waiting because they did not want to A, freak us out or B, destroy us in the benign interpretation of the cover-up. Now, is this real? Is that merely a projection on my part trying to find a uh, kind of a benign explanation for half a century of lying and lying and lying about what every human being on Earth and certainly every American thinks that NASA was supposed to be about, about the truth, about finding someone out there, of finding and proving to the tune of an entire government space agency that we are not alone. And they've been sitting on this, this extraordinary, mind-blowing truth. And don't look in your sock drawers tonight because they're all gone. We've blown the doors off all the socks from anyone listening to this discourse. Which takes us to item number 62. Because I found verification in my own perusing of the NASA data back, oh, maybe 10, 15 years ago, before I did that first weird conference in, uh, in Wyoming and got pulled into a side door by a guy from the CIA who basically physically threatened me if I ever talked about lunar artifacts again. And I'm still here. And you know, about 20 some years ago, they tried to kill me and we're still here. So again, the question remains, why does nobody in NASA, none of these genius, incredibly, you know, positively minded, altruistically, we're here to serve mankind, uh, acolytes at JPL, all the engineers and scientists and all the grad students and everybody's looking at the images from Mars, as we said uh, last night with Neville. How come not one of them does an Edward Snowden and shows us the truth? Is it possible they've all been shown the story of why it cannot happen until a certain time? And that time, ladies and gentlemen, is now beginning literally tonight or early Monday morning, 2,000 miles away on the west coast uh, of, uh, I'm sorry, east coast of the United States and Florida at Cape Canaveral. So, number 62. Uh, in the mid-60s, uh, NASA launched five spacecraft to the moon called Lunar Orbiter. And the irony is that the same company, iTech, that made the cameras in Corona and in Gambit and in Hexagon. They also made the same camera that went in Lunar Orbiter, except the uh, NASA people, based on another top secret program called SAMOS, 
and they're all being declassified now so we can freely talk about them, which was a project to try to beam down electronically uh, spy satellite images from orbit so you wouldn't have to return the film, which was very cantankerous and very quirky and very idiosyncratic. And many times, I mean, there were something like 130 uh, launches in the Corona program from 60 to 72. A lot of those did not survive, did not succeed, were not successful. They did not return the film. So the obvious way would be to somehow electronically take pictures and send those television images to Earth, except the television technology of the 1960s was awful, awful, 525 lines, come on. So returning the film was the best. Scanning the film in orbit in the spacecraft and then electronically sending those electronic scans of the high-res film down to Earth was the next best thing to having the real film. And that's what was used in Lunar Orbiter, which was a direct lineal descendant of the Cold War. Without the Cold War, without the desperate need of the Eisenhower administration after open skies were shut down by Khrushchev to get accurate data on the missile deployments of the Soviet Union, we would never have had one frame of Lunar Orbiter film from the moon, on which I found a bunch of stunning stuff. Lunar Orbiter Frame 84M, for instance, and you all know about this for years, those of you who have been following my work, you can see there are two stunning artificial objects in this frame, which was an oblique taken looking sideways by the spacecraft seen in item number 62. And on the distant horizon, you can see two things sticking up, something that looks like kind of a misshapen bowling ball called the Shard, which actually is a mega skyscraper on the scale of this image, still surviving. The little cross above it is not artificial in the sense of being lunar. It's artificial in the sense of being on the, on the film put in by Kodak to be scanned after it was taken in lunar orbit. So that's a registration mark. It's kind of a uh, uh, calibration device for lining up the strips of the film when it was scanned in the satellite, in the spacecraft. The very weird object next to it on the left of the frame is a close-up of the object in the, in the back in the smaller version. This is a glittering glass tower, geometric tower sticking up about eight, nine miles above the moon. And it's still there because see all that white at the top? It's massive. It has resisted micrometeorite abrosion, uh, abrasion and erosion. Yeah, that's what you get when you combine two words. It's abrosion on the moon. Um, and it survived God knows how many millions of years just because it's sheer massive geometry and Lunar Orbiter 3 photographed in 1967, this object. And of course, it came back and NASA had no idea what they what they had because I don't think the NASA folks at that time had a kind of a need to know. That was in the CIA. So what did this all look like when it was new? Well, based on the uh, Corona data and based on the Lunar Orbiter data, I put together item number 64, a visual um, tour de force of what I think the moon might have looked like when it was new. Like that incredible glittering glass, spidery sea urchin type geometry you see on the left, companioned with what's left of it now in the CIA corona imagery on the right. Now, this is where things get really weird and interesting. Because if you go to number 65, remember how I said that they did not want to give us real color because of what was on the far side of the moon? 
a lot of this glittering glass is much more present there than on the front side. Why is that? Well, because of the catastrophe that overwhelmed the solar system like 66 million years ago, when in our model, there was the great celestial war. And a planet was literally blown to kingdom come. Its pieces shattered and spread across space, the fragments of which literally wiped out most of the dome, except for the cigarette-sized particles on the side of the moon facing front in its orbit. The side facing back, which is now the far side of the moon, was spared a lot of impact debris and is much better preserved. And we have all kinds of visual evidence that the real place to figure out the ancient lunar dome far side of the moon. So now look very carefully um, at these close-ups in number 66. It turns out the reason that NASA gave us overexposed versions in black and white of the lacrosse shepherding satellite imagery is because they blanked out with huge literal rectangles all the dome detail present in this visual imagery on the far side of the moon imagine what is there if we had missions which could in fact view uncensored what is on the night side or the dark side which is really not the dark side it gets dark there every two weeks like on the side that we can see imagine if we had untrammeled photographs of the far side of the moon oh wait a minute we do and they come from the chinese everybody's going to want to google chinese chang four chang five and chang three two one imagery from their orbital spacecraft and kind of take a look at what they've done with what's waiting on the far side of the moon now what's really weird is that the cover-up artists were really kind of dumb I mean, these are obviously people in the chain of command, and when they're given an order, they do it to the letter of the law. But look what they left visible all around the limb of this underexposed, overexposed mess of a lacrosse visual moon from the lacrosse mission in 2009. They left the tangential evidence of on the far side of the moon of the glittering glass dome as that bright band around the edge which spectrally because of a spectral sunset at the pole on the far left turns incredible deep red and we've got new data that shows you what you would see if you were standing on the moon's surface and could see that which takes us to number 67 you guys all know that i love what's called independent confirmation independent evidence that in fact something that you never expected is confirmed by something that you do totally separately that has no immediate connection to the project at hand but the data sets happen to converge and because they're independent you can really trust them because team a and team b never even talked to each other let alone knew each other well this is what's happening in item 67 68 69 because back in 1946, in January, the U.S. Army Signal Corps out of Fort Monmouth, New Jersey, sent radio signals for the first time to the moon. They used a World War II off-the-shelf radar set, which had been literally, ironically, used to detect the uh, incoming Japanese aircraft in Pearl Harbor. But, of course, no one knew about radar back then, and 
they thought they were having equipment problems and they didn't send the proper warning and Pearl Harbor took place as we know it. But the same radar, whose, you know, not image number, but uh, model number, I forget, is what they used to bounce. It was called Project Moon Bounce or Project Diana. Because remember, Project Diana, Diana is another uh, Roman name for Artemis. So Project Artemis slash Diana in January of 1946 beamed radar, radar pulses to the moon. And those pulses and the echo, the echo return, the bounce is visible in item number 68, right there side by side the antenna. The big spike on the left, that's the pulse detected by the receivers of the radio wave at the speed of light being sent toward the moon. And then the little pulse on the far right marked uh, underneath with a little demarcation of distance. That's the reflection from the moon back in 1946. Okay, but what's really happening? Because this, in fact, is totally independent, gold-plated, rock-solid, 100% for sure evidence of an ancient artificial dome around the moon. How? That's laid out in image 69. Because remember, if there really is a glass shell of multiple layers in whatever tattered form it currently exists, is only visible optically if you look in the far, far, far ultraviolet, but in the visible it's totally transparent, what does it, how does it interact with radio waves, particularly radio waves around 1600 megahertz or megacycles? That's what was broadcast from the U.S. Army at Port Monmouth in January of 1946. And they broadcast, and then they listened. And one and a quarter seconds later, the radio wave hit the moon. That's the lunar distance in speed of light time. And then two and a half seconds later, the echo came back to be picked up by the receivers at Port Monmouth. And they eventually, by straining and summing signals and summing experiments and pulses they were able to detect a signal above the noise and that's what you see in that graph and what's actually going on because we now know based on all this evidence a lot of it from the cia remember the blue curvature is the wave going out the red is the faded signal coming back which of course is bouncing like off a spherical ball bearing primarily from the center of the moon, the moon being a sphere, and most of the energy bouncing back from the little tiny spot right in the center because the, the beam covered the entire moon. Half a degree, the, the, uh, the size of the radio waves sent to the moon exceeded the physical diameter of the moon. So look at detail at item number 68 again, because in the ideal world, the red reflected echo, uh, which is R to the fourth, in terms of signal strength, you divide by the fourth power because it's inverse square out, inverse square back. So the signal that you get back, the echo, is really teeny, teeny, tiny, and you can hear with 1946 technology. So where do we get that long pulse, which lasts for several milliseconds, which translates to several hundred miles how in the world do you get a several hundred mile timed echo from a specular reflection off the front surface 
of an airless moon? The answer is in the details of what you're seeing schematically in item number 69. Because what happened to the radio wave from Project Diana is exactly the same thing that happens when uh, radio people on Earth try to send short wave around the Earth. They bounce the radio waves off the electrified ionosphere, which acts like a dome above the Earth, reflects the radio waves bouncing back and forth, bouncing back and forth, back and forth, from Earth to ground, from Earth to ground, from Earth to, to the sky, to the ionosphere, back to ground, until they form a long linear set of pulses completely circling the Earth that we now call, because of natural radio emission triggered by lightning, the Schumann Resonance. So what the Project Diana radio waves did is they illuminated and caused radio beam scattering in the remnants of the dome and a prolonged, delayed, multiple reflection echo from the physics of the dome itself, which shows up in that little bump of the echo, which should be a spike and in fact is a long time delayed return. Totally overwhelming, incontrovertible proof from a totally different experiment of the physical existence of an ancient shattered dome upon the moon. Which brings us now, we're going to go through these quickly. Item 70 and 71, these are normal and enhanced views of a panorama from Apollo 11. When the astronauts landed, every photograph they took, you can see the dome from the inside. The sky should be pitch black. They should be absolutely crystal clear. They are not. Item number 72, this is a frame from the uh, uh, panorama taken by the Apollo 12 astronauts which included, by the way, Alan Bean, who was a hell of an artist who later memorialized his dome experience in myriad paintings year after year after year. Then we have item number 73. This is a normal shot from Apollo 14 taken by Alan Shepard of Ed Mitchell putting up the TV camera. When you enhance it on the right, bingo, there's the structural supports and layered geometry of the lower levels of the dome. Number 74 is more of that geometry, and you look at the detailed buttressing, the cross beams of what's holding up the dome even now. Number 75 is a super enlargement. Look at the slanted buttresses, which is what you would do under gravity to constructionally keep a physical structure aloft miles above the moon that you did not want to ever fall down. Item number 76. Um, this is now from Apollo 16. This is one of my favorite shots, this in the 77, because I realized at some point, well, if this is an optically interacting glass structure, there's got to be enough of it left that it's going to interact at dawn and sunset like any refracting medium will. It's got to create prisms. It's got to create spectral refractions. It's got to create incredible glows of sunrise and sunsets on Earth. And lo and behold, in 76 and 77 respectively, compared to a sunset view with about the same geometry looking away from the sun toward the backscatter of cloud illumination on the Earth in the right-hand frame of the Golden Gate Bridge. The, the frame on the left is from Apollo 17. And look at what's above those mountains, which, by the way, are not mountains. They're ancient collapsed arcologies on the moon. Look at the little lunar module sitting out in front and then look at the incredible spectral prismatic dispersion 
of sunlight refracting through the ancient glass dome above the moon, exactly like sunlight does on Earth in a refractive medium, except there's no atmosphere above the moon and certainly no atmosphere that can hold geometry like you see in that left-hand frame. Item number 78, uh, here's a uh, uh, photograph from Apollo 12. There's a uh, being coming down the ladder uh, from the LEM, and uh, Pete Conrad took the picture. Notice that his spacesuit, which is actually blinding bright white, has all kinds of interesting subtle shades of color, lavenders and blues and yellows. Why is that? And look at the frame on the left. That is a painting that Alan Bean did years later of what it was his physical experience to walk on the moon. What, of course, he's showing is what happens when you refract sunlight through the dome remaining above the lunar surface. At all the landing sites, you get multicolored spectral beams of prismatic color, and the moon is an incredible riot of color. It's not dull gray, and they've been lying about that, too. Reads us to number 79. This is now an image on the left from the Chinese that landed Chang-3. Remember, Chang is the uh, Chinese goddess of the moon. They landed Chang-3 uh, and Mari Imbrium in the upper left-hand corner, not far from Plato. And in the right, I have composited four frames of imagery of the sky of space above each of the landing sites. And then you can see that the geometry and, and uh, coloring and, and illumination of the dome on the surface of the Chinese image with a totally different technology 40 plus years later and a totally different and antithetical political system is identical to what NASA photographed on the moon 40 years before, which brings me to number 80 and 81. Because oddly enough, back in 1970, as I was fulfilling my role as science advisor to CBS and Walter Cronkite, I proposed that we chase and photograph from midair, and I'm running out of steam here. Hang on. See, this is why I have guests, because I let them do the talking. Anyway, you can see that we proposed the first ever color television television show of a total solar eclipse that in 1970 in March, on March 7th, was running up the East Coast. Furthermore, I proposed that we borrow a U.S. Air Force KC-135 equipped to photograph missile launches out of Cape Canaveral, actually Patrick Air Force Base, which is now uh, Space Force Base 1 or something, and that we chase it and we beam live to the ground a television image for the first time of not only a color eclipse, but a color eclipse photographed from midair from 40,000 feet over Georgia. And number 81, there is my name on the, on the credits for the film, for the, for the show. And right below it, down below, is Dr. Uh, Michael Nadar, who was, I think, from NASA Ames. And there's Charlie Wyckoff, who designed, along with the head of the Stanford CBS lab, my telescope and cameras and all that to photograph what's in number 82, which is the first color television image taken of a total eclipse of the moon in 1970 and look what's around the right hand edge oh if i'd only known then what i know now because inadvertently back in 1970 
in March of 1970, this experiment, which I proposed to, to CBS, and which they carried out, actually captured the first color images from Earth that we know of, of the ancient lunar dome. It's right there on the edge. Oh, and the hole in the center? That's a hole I had cut in a specially prepared half-silvered mirror that I had constructed to try to see the Earth light back then with imaging technology, with television cameras, tube cameras that would photograph the surface of the moon lit by Earth light during a total solar eclipse, which, of course, in 83, you can see now easily because now with CCD technology, this is a, a shot taken by a Czechoslovakian astronomer in 2008, you can see easily that the night side of the moon is fully lit by Earth light from a quarter million miles away. Look at the stunning corona. Look at what surrounds the moon, that ring. Look at the Earth light. Then look at the comparison of the three images in 84. Then look at the close-up in 85, because not only are we seeing an Earth-lit moon, but we're seeing the same thing in the visible, in the blue part of the spectrum, that the corona photography saw back in 1969 or 68 or 62, we're seeing the gradations of the density of the dome getting denser and toward the limb. And then in number 86, you can see what happens when the right solar eclipse occurs correctly geometrically because you get a lens-like view of the chromosphere of the sun 93 million miles away and stunning internal geometry of the dome. Finally, everyone in this audience tonight who is listening to my voice can literally go out and they can prove it for themselves because in 2024, there is going to be another total solar eclipse covering the United States and everybody with a smartphone camera from their own backyard in that strip from Mexico to the north of Maine can photograph for themselves and prove the reality of the ancient lunar dome. Remember, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone. And Artemis is about to begin all of this for real.